All right. Eric, how you hey, doing? Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? Good. So, thanks for doing this. Absolutely. My, my pleasure. It's been a while. You've been traveling around, so it's been kind of hard getting a hold of you. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's <laughs> been uh, It's been a little bit crazy. <laughs> I thought when I left the Republican Party that I'd have more time to spend at home and, you know, just hang out, not have to worry about politics. And I do have more time overall, but I guess what ends up happening is when you're the one libertarian congressman that's ever existed, people want you to come speak at their events. So I end up going to a lot of libertarian party events and, sure. and it's yeah, fun. Well, it's it's I been feel fun. Like you're, like, you're like me in some ways in the sense that uh, whenever you have free time, you end up just finding something to fill it with. Um, Cause you're, you're kind of like a, you're just a productive person, right? Like you want to be doing something and accomplishing something. And so yeah. You know, I think, you know, I, I guess I don't know how you're exactly with free time, but I will enjoy sitting out reading a book or something like that. But there's always a nagging part of like, I could probably do something else that maybe is, you know, working on a show or working at doing something with my uh, practice or something. And so there's always a little bit of, um, you know, maybe, I don't know if guilt's the right word, but certainly a, a thought in the back of your mind that, you know, there's probably something that, that I could just be productive. And I don't know if that's like a, I guess some sort of puritanical <laughs> no, I, something, but I think, but I always feel that like I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be totally idle. And that's, uh, it's, unless I'm like officially on a vacation, then I feel like I could be totally idle. I can totally relate to that. I feel guilty every time I watch a TV show and I like <laughs> watching good TV. You know, I'm, I'm a fan of, you know, sitting down and watching some TV. I'm introverted anyway. So, you know, what's more fun for an introvert than sitting back and watching some TV. Well, it's certainly not going and talking live in front of hundreds of thousands of people, right? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so I enjoy that. But every time I do it, I do feel like maybe I should be working on something else. And, and then I think, well, I actually don't have any time to myself. You know, I'm always doing something for, for someone else. Yeah. And, um, and I even feel guilty sometimes sitting down and reading a book, you know. Like yeah. I'm trying to read um, – uh, reread some Hayek I have the the Constitution of Liberty, and I just want to reread it again. Um, you know, it's, I've reread it multiple times now, but you just want to re refresh your mind, and you're like, well, maybe instead of reading the Constitution of Liberty again, I should be doing something else. So yeah, well, I'm I'm reading a. I read the Expanse series, which was fantastic. I don't know if you've watched that show. Oh yeah, it, I for I'm, it's yeah, I'm really not. Good. I haven't. Um, gotten to the last season, but yeah, I, the last season. Uh, don't so they had, no, nine, don't don't spoil I'm anything. Just, I'm just saying the nine books. Okay, they go, they and go also to, for anyone listening, Eric is about to probably spoil something. So I'm not going to spoil anything. Okay, I, I, it is probably one of the best science fiction shows, and I recommend it to everybody because it actually brings politics in uh, of uh, in a new world it's set in the future it's uh, there's mars and earth and people live outside those planets and and uh, and it doesn't have many times you when you watch shows there's there's a um, there's clearly like these are the republicans these democrats or these sort of there's sort of uh, parallels to today's politics and it doesn't have any of that it's just like you know politics is just human interactions and so it it's just a really good way i think they're good, good characters and it's good a good reasonable sort of way people react to situations these governments um but there are nine books in the, there's nine books in the series that completes the series 
the series, the show goes through six books. The sixth season is a shortened season and it tries to condense basically a season into half as many shows. And so it just, it just seems, it feels a little bit rushed and condensed is all I was going to say is that, so that sixth season is a little less satisfying. Are you saying that the, are you saying that the seasons match up with the books? Yes. And so they're just skipping books seven, eight, and nine? Yes. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, it in some ways ends, it's not an unreasonable place to, to end the series, but they hint that there's something else. Like, you know, lots of shows or movies, they'll have the, the, tr- the little thing at the end, Easter egg or something like, oh, I mean, there's more to this, you know, sometimes intentionally left open-ended where there's, there's no intention of filling up later. Um, but in the, in the book, it's, it, it's, much more robust as sort of how it, it ends. And so it's, it is just a little unsatisfying season finale. I felt, hmm. uh, and also it's weird because one of the characters, no, in the book no, I don't, don't is spoil things. I'm just saying one of the in, in characters in the book, uh, does not perish like they do in, um, okay. In we series. don't, that's I'll, all I'll say. I'll just wipe that out of my no, mind. I don't, I don't know who you're talking about. But anyway, so, but anyway, um, well, you've already seen this. Uh, but anyway, uh, I would say so I'm reading a, another series uh, my wife and, and daughter read, and I, even reading that book series, it's a it's a fantasy series. Again, I'm like maybe I should be reading some other like more serious nonfiction book <laughs> than this, this pleasure <laughs> book, right? Uh, so I feel that urge, and even even like doing pleasure, I don't know. It's just it's uh, it, it, you feel like there's if unless it's a, I feel like this is a designated time to be doing some sort of pleasure sort of thing that I. I probably should be doing something else, and I it bothers me that I, I get that way sometimes. But yeah, you know. yeah. I mean, because relaxing and enjoying a TV show or a book has to be a part of life, no matter how busy you are. I mean, you can't live your life just moving from place to place and constantly working on things, especially things for other people, and you're not enjoying your own life. Right, and I think social media plays into that too, because you can some. Even social media, in some ways, if you've got some sort of brand or something to promote, you kind of feel obligated that you should be doing that. And that can really uh, take away, I think, a lot from – it doesn't provide any relaxation, right? Because you still feel like there's a task that you're trying to accomplish. Even when you're in there, there's something – you're looking for something, an idea for a show or idea for something. And so I, I, social media, I think – it doesn't allow you time to think and I think to reflect and to sort of – Ponder yeah. things. I mean, I think you that's know, that's important. What social media does to me, which is really pernicious, I I don't really like it, is that because I am known for my consistency, and inevitably someone's going to call me out as a hypocrite falsely on yeah. something. I, I get that like all the time on Twitter. If I'm not staying on top of things and commenting on things, people will say. When that thing happened, why didn't you say anything? And it yeah. proves that you weren't consistent. So if I was calling out Obama or Trump and then I don't call out Biden, they're like, well, how come you called out Trump but not Biden? So I am constantly in uh, a mode where I need to stay on top of things and be aware that later on people treat your silence on something as though – you approve of it under one president, but not another, or you right. disapprove under one, but not another. But that's, I mean, that's an unfortunate aspect of social media because there's no, I, I'm under no obligation to comment on everything. 
No, I'm, well, I'm allowed to have I'm allowed to have the same opinion and also not comment on it. I'm just a person. You, you don't have to always be uh, handing out your receipts, right? I mean, that's right. It, it's entertaining, but it is, uh, and that is to, to the point. It's like you're on there, and you're in, in effect protecting your brand, right? And who you are, and your your and and your presence, or you know what you are online, because that is, I mean, that is in many ways, probably how pe- most people know you or many people know you is just that your online presence and which is a weird sort of, I guess, I don't know if there's any parallel from like the 1990s, but I suppose people would send letters to the editor. You probably wouldn't expect to <laughs> answer all those letters and say, well, you know, in fact, I actually did, you know, say something against George Bush or something, right? It, at that time, they would just have to know that or it, it, it was just a different time, right? There wasn't the expectation that you would immediately reply to certain things. And I think that's, that's what I think where you get in trouble because you can't sort of take off a couple of weeks because yeah. know, there's the expectation <laughs> that you're going to be, have a presence and say something. Right. And that's the worst part on vacations that I'll be on a vacation and I'm out somewhere trying to have a good time. And then, you know, something happens in the world and I'm, I'm almost <laughs> obligated to comment on it because people will say, why didn't you comment on this? And it's like, I'm on vacation. Uh, you know, like I'm allowed to be on vacation and not comment on it. Right. But, but they're not on vacation. But, so they but yeah, but say, yeah, people, right. people just don't accept that. It's kind of funny. You brought up letters to the editor and I, I'd almost forgotten about the whole idea of letters to the, to the editor. Because, uh, uh, you know, I started in politics long enough ago now that that was a thing. Like nobody cares. Yeah. Any, oh, like. Yeah. Now we just have Twitter and there's social media where people are constantly doing the equivalent of a letter to the editor every few seconds about you or about other people. Um, but I guess there was a time when that mattered. You know, someone writes something mean about you in the newspaper. And, and it had to be more thoughtful. and It had to be more cogent. And it, it, it wasn't like a dunk. You couldn't just dunk on people with the three cent. You couldn't send a three sentence uh, screed to the, the newspaper saying – you know, making some clever, you know, witty sort of comment because you wouldn't get away with it, <laughs> right? I mean, you have to have, I mean, you could, but they never print, they never publish it. So it was, I mean, I don't know if it's better, it's just different, but it's, um, so now, of course, you have, a, it's easier to get your voice out and to um, you know, give yourself a brand if you're nobody, but it's, uh, but maybe that's a curse in, in many ways, like everything, right? There's always the trade-offs. Yeah, I guess there was, was there any equivalent of trolling back then? I'm not sure. Um, you couldn't really do it in the same way. No, but you know, I think yeah, it would be, it was harder. I think you would you'd have to actually physically go someplace and troll someone. Like you, <laughs> yeah. like you. I mean, there were much more. I think protests of people outside of places. Yeah, you know, um, carrying placards and stuff. I mean, now yeah, you know, no one does that sort of thing really. But it, it it's more effort. <laughs> you just do it while you're sitting right. Here sitting at home. So how did we meet? I'm trying to remember what was the, yeah, what was the exact moment? Where, where was it that we, (laughs) I wasn't sure if you had a stroke or something. I was, (laughs) (laughs) no, so the, the story I always tell people, and I think this is pretty accurate is in 2007. um, So I was involved in libertarian politics in West Michigan. I moved here in 2004. And so I was uh, libertarian party, West Michigan and then Ron Paul ran in 2007. I won't go through the whole story of Ron Paul and sort of all the things that went through it. But 
um, we had a meetup here in Grand Rapids and through, uh, an, you know, looking for Ron Paul supporters, it was not easy to find them because, it, you know, it is hard to believe, but even 2007, the online world was a lot more challenging to find and connect people. Mm-hmm. There were meetups, you know, meetup was a, uh, I don't even know if it exists anymore. I think it still does, but that was uh, a program you'd use and you could set up meetings and stuff. But anyway, we had a fairly robust meetup here in Grand Rapids. We had a couple hundred people who would go and do stuff. We'd wave signs and placards. We'd uh, hit, do palm cards and stuff. And so you could also look up stuff like FEC filings. And so I would look up people who contribute to the Ron Paul campaign. You're one of them, as were, I don't know, probably 100 people, maybe in, in West Michigan, in Grand Rapids area. And I would send letters to them or leave stuff at their door. I mean, it's like, you know, it's hard for getting a hold of people. And then I noticed that you were running for state house in my district. We live just a couple miles apart in, in the same state house district. And I thought, oh, I got to, you know, meet this guy because, he, you know, for one thing, you gave money to Ron Paul. And then you're also running for office, like a real office. And I went to your house and uh, these are your address courses on the FEC filing. And I, I put a, I left a Ron Paul thing because I just hit your whole neighborhood. And, and then, you know, I think I, I think I reached out and, but I don't know what I did. I don't, it wasn't until after the primary was in January of 2008, right? I think it'd be 2008 for the primary. And, um, and then I got a hold of you. You somehow. mean, you mean the presidential primary presidential? Yeah, correct. The presidential yeah. primary was in 2008, I think January, uh, cause we moved it up state of Michigan, you know, to be important. And then, um, I got a hold of you and said, I, I saw you're running for office. I'd be interested in meeting with you. And we just met and we met as you and Chad and I, we met at the, I don't know, that restaurant or bar place up on Beltline or something. And we sat and talked for about an hour where, where you just kind of went over why you're running and what you, you know, what you stood for. And I told you about myself and that's, that's how we met. I mean, first time in person. Huh. I can't remember this the was... place because that that restaurant's changed names too. I can't remember what it's called now. I can't remember what's then. How far you know up on Beltline was it? I'm trying to think uh, about which one it was. Right Beltline and and the freeway. It's uh, it's like a it's um, right. Oh, you get up the oh I know what you're talking about. It was like it was an Uno once once right. It's um, it was a pizzeria Uno about. right at one point. Maybe so. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that's what it was then. It was Flanagan's or something like that, or yeah. Anyway, it was I don't remember. But um, oh, that's interesting though that Chad was there, who was the he he was a guest on my my first yeah, podcast right. he, episode. Yeah, yeah. Right. so I met yeah I met you and Chad, and we kind of just you know he's just your friend, and we were just talking about something. He was running your campaign or starting or you strategizing, I think, at that point. Yeah, and then I came home to my wife. I said, "Well, this guy is pretty good." If he's if he does half of what he says he does, you know, I'm all in. <laughs> and I may I'll stick around the Republican Party for a little bit, but I knew pretty confidently that I wouldn't be with the Republican Party very long because anyone who I like loses. So I thought <laughs> this is like a two month commitment, maybe three months, and then you won the primary, and then you won and of course then once you win the primary, you pretty much win the, the general. And so and then that's sort of the start of this. And then we just got to know each other through, over time. I mean, through, obviously through your campaign and stuff. So, yeah, I know what it's fans. like. I know what it's like where um, you are looking for a libertarian candidate and and 
you're like, if you find one, there's no chance this person's going to win, first of all. Right. Uh, that's like the common thing. And I've, in my life, found a few that I thought had a shot at winning. And some who even did go on to win various races, but it was invariably the case with maybe one exception or two that the person ended up not being very libertarian once, once that person got into office. It's just, um, it's hard to find people who are actually believers and will actually commit to it once they're, you know, put under pressure. Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't been in the, the pressure cooker that you have uh, in actual office, but I imagine probably far more people are very much in support of those viewpoints and those principles. And I think you, you get into the, the conundrum where you are, if you feel like the only way you can get anything done is to compromise some of those in order to get your bill or whatever your angle is on some sort of legislation. But by making that compromise, you kind of set yourself down a road, a path that you can't really recover from. And you've, when you've abandoned some of those principles or whatever, that now, that now there's really no way back. And that the only way to get the people who are in power, who can make changes, committee chairs, leadership, or whatever, uh, that you, that now you're kind of stuck. And so to make them happy, you have to do what they want, which means you have to abandon your principles. But if you don't and you keep your principles, then you can't get anything done. And so I feel like not that it's impossible, but it's an extremely challenging sort of um, road to go. And you probably don't have, you probably don't feel much support because most people don't know what's going on in the legislature as far as, you know, voters and supporters and stuff. And so, you know, they, they sort of lie in the news or whatever the leadership tells you, says as far as a press release. I mean, that's just my hunch. And so I think it's yeah. probably really challenging. And there's a lot of, like everybody and everybody in government or people who meet with you are people who want, government solutions to most problems on some level right i mean they're right that's why they're there and and so you i mean all the pressure you feel is pressure to do the wrong thing i suppose and there's never any pressure or encouragement to do the right thing and so then you're kind of left with well maybe people really don't want me to do the right thing or so it's probably easier just a path just go down or you just leave office after one term you say well this just didn't work out the way i thought it was going to yeah i found that most of the people who were going to sell out their principles did so relatively quickly. I mean, you can see it within six months, um, a year at most usually. It's pretty unusual that someone goes, for example, three or four years being pretty principled and then sells out. That's that's highly unusual. It's, it's usually much faster than that. Um, I've only had, I think, one person that I endorsed who no I don't I'm not even sure I endorsed him <laughs> that's Thomas Massey <laughs> I'm not sure I endorsed Thomas Massey at the time uh, because of my level of skepticism yeah of uh, not of him but of just people generally people running for yeah, office right. but he's the one person I can think of who maybe some of the listeners here will know who, who came in and was actually really good with his votes. You know, yeah. I, I can't complain about it. I was looking back recently at voting records because when I was uh, the chairman of the House Liberty Caucus, um, which is the group I founded, I actually kept a secret scorecard of all my colleagues. 
And and so I like, have so like every Republican in Congress, whether every, they were part of your Liberty Caucus, every Republican and Democrat, every okay. every member of the House, okay. I I kept track of their votes, and um, what I did was I scored Libertarian votes. So the votes that I thought were particularly Libertarian in in importance, I uh, kept track of those votes. Whether it was some voting the wrong way, like a like a no vote would be a good libertarian vote or in some cases a yes vote might be a good libertarian vote. Sure. Although yeah. probably no vote was more commonly the good libertarian vote. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I kept track of these things uh, for several years and I was looking back and really Thomas is the only one who um, overwhelmingly passes the test. In other words, yeah. where you feel like that guy was consistent through and through on the votes, um, just vote after vote after vote. And I'm not there anymore. So obviously it's hard for me to measure now and to know what's going on, but presumably he's still doing uh, a great job, but usually, um, and I only say that with that little level of skepticism, not because, you know, he's my friend and I obviously trust him, (laughs) but (laughs) I've been, I've been in politics long enough to know, like, as soon as you take your eye off of something, you know, I found some people really flipped. Like, you know, it's it's highly unusual after that many years to be different in any way that's significant. But yeah, but you just never know in politics. You don't know like like what might happen to someone um, in a different environment. So I would say, you know, he was fantastic. Uh, but so many others were disappointments. You wouldn't believe how many people came to Congress who said that they were you know, Justin Amash Republicans at the time. And they told me that. And they they wanted pictures with me. And, you know, it's like all the, you know, they wanted my endorsement, uh, maybe even wanted my autograph. These were members of Congress, right? Yeah. They came in yeah. and they were, they were like, I'm such a fan. Can I get a picture, et cetera? And then within six months, these people were just towing the line with leadership. Yeah. And had totally forgotten about Justin Amash or libertarianism or even constitutional conservatism or, you know, any sort of fiscal responsibility. And I don't know. It's it's really remarkable. Um, I would hold town halls and I suspect you've been to a few of my town halls. Yeah. And um, what I would find at town halls is sometimes people would say – Justin, why are people in Congress so corrupt? Why do they sell out, etc.? And I think, and you touched on this a little bit, it's easy for someone sitting in an audience to say that. But when you put that same person who's a true believer under the, in the pressure cooker in Congress, they change. That person will change. It's just hard for them to to hold true because you don't have that support system that you need. Uh, maybe you've got a family that cares enough. Like, like in my case, I had uh, my siblings, of course, for example, who were very much pushing me to do the right thing and to stay principled and were there when I took the tough votes. But there are a lot of people who don't have that kind of system and yes. they don't have the friends surrounding them who are going to encourage them to do the right thing. Instead, they have people surrounding them saying, 
hey, do the wrong thing because it's better for your career. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I was talking about a similar thing the other day. You know, obviously I work in the hospital and I was president of my group for a while. And I've been in leadership, various leadership positions within the hospital, uh, within of my anesthesia group, and then also within surgery centers and such. But there's a, um, there's definitely a, decisions get made in various ways. And I think it, oftentimes we think that once we change our role or position, that we will get more power or we'll be, have better ability to change things. And there is an institutional inertia that exists within any organization, uh, whether it's corporate or whatever. Obviously, a small organization, it's easier to change on a dime. But if things are even slightly larger, you know, you have, say, 100 people in your business, it is really hard to make a change. And so, you know, you look at a, a change in a hospital or something like that, uh, when, you know, governments, obviously, magnitudes of that. It is really hard to get something through, and and it and what you can get, you can get sort of seduced into thinking that if I have a different position, that now I will be able to really influence the decision making process within that organization, and so you'll you'll see oftentimes where you're like, well, I'm a on a committee member, I'm a committee member, but if I was chair of this committee, then I could really make sure that we we address the things that I want changed because I'm you know I have problems with what X Y or Z, and then you become a chair. And you realize that, ah, you know, I, I can kind of help direct the conversation, but I can't really make, I can't bring the right things to my committee. But if I was in some sort of leadership position above that, maybe in a management committee or something like that. And so you get in a management committee and now, yeah, you have more decisions, but you feel, still feel like you're not able to really direct things. And so then you think, well, if I was president of this organization or I was the CEO, then I'd be able to make, and, and you find that even, even there, you can't, you, you really struggle. And I, and I think that is pretty easy for people to see and think, well, if I'm, if I run for office in state house, I can get something done, but okay, well, I can't get as much as I want, but you know what? I bet if I was a state Senator, I could really get, or, or maybe if I went to Congress or right. I mean, I, and I think that's probably a huge frustration. I can imagine when you become president of the United States, you think, well, I'm like top dog. I can do anything I want. And yet you still can't get anything done. I mean, I'm sure that because the institutional inertia around you for everything, is really pretty impressive and immense. And I think, I think in human interactions in general, it is, it is, it is very easy to convince yourself that if you just get to the next position. And so in order to get those positions, you may make decisions or change your principles or, or work with people or do things in order to get to those positions of power that you think will be able to influence things later. And it turns out that you, you don't really accomplish what you hoped. Uh, that's not to say that you can never make any changes or, but I think it's not quite as easy and as obvious and it, it can be much more challenging and there are more obstacles than you probably can perceive in general. Right. I think this is maybe the, the, uh, the, uh, fatal conceit, right. Or that you think you have all the knowledge. Well, you don't have in, in nearly as much knowledge you think you need in order to make a change. And that's what really, what really hinders you from making real change in organizations or, you know, government would be another example. Yeah, there there are so many of my colleagues who thought that if they just fell in line with leadership on this particular vote, that was going to help them get to the next step. And then another vote comes up and they're like, well, now i got to fall in line in, on this one uh, because they need me. And the leadership will tell you, do you want to be relevant or do you want to be totally irrelevant? They'll say <laughs> that to you. Yeah. And people think to themselves, well, what good is it to be principled? but not actually be able to change things. But what they find actually 
is that they sell out so many of their principles that by the time they're in a position to change anything, they're also not interested in changing anything. They're just, you know, they're, they're trapped. Their principles are gone. They've abandoned yeah. them a long time ago. And actually, they're not in any position now to go back to them because the, the support structure that got them to that position, it might be donors, it might be uh, members of leadership, it, it could be a whole host of people who got them to that point. Those people aren't interested in your old principles. They're interested. <laughs> that's not why you're there, yeah. No, that's not that's not why they put you there. And so they no longer have those principles. They're gone, and they've totally forgotten about it. And there are other people who get to Congress, and I guess a, a sort of similar thing happens, which is they they recognize that actually the whole thing is a performance. That there's not really much there that any of them can do including the people at the top unless you're like the the very top like the speaker of the house and what ends up happening is they start to look inward at their own um you know what what can advantage them personally because they're like the principles i believed in which were principles essentially for the greater good you know how can we make society a uh function in a better way um how can we use you know they're they're in government right they're trying to in some ways change or affect government or governance as soon as they realize they don't have that power they start to say well okay all that stuff that i ran about you know uh, my principles etc that's not doing much of anything so i guess i just need to worry about myself and my own livelihood and my own ability to, you know, uh, make a living for my family or be able to have a career after Congress as a lobbyist or uh, as a media personality or whatever it is. And they, they start to look inward instead of thinking about the big picture and the principles they ran on. So that is um, that is really unfortunate. Uh, that's just part of human nature though. Yeah. And I, and, and I think that's probably the important thing to recognize too, because you can't expect it to be different just because you get different people because they're going to still have the same pressures. They're still going to have, and you're still going to have, unless you had a thousand people suddenly who are all in Congress, right. Who had the same sort of principles as far as process, let's say, or whatever, you're not going to get this to work out. And, and even, even so, the people who support you, who are the infrastructure, i.e., donors to campaigns and um, you know the staff, they all work in another system as well. And so, you'd have to you have to just sort of totally retool everything, and it's probably impossible in some ways. And so, you can only sort of work at the margins. And and uh, I don't know. I mean, I'd, I don't want to be pessimistic about the process, but I think it's just it's more daunting and it's more challenging than people probably even pre- probably people will appreciate because I think you think, oh, well, you just Remove lobbyists, or it's the money in Congress that makes it. So if you if you're a billionaire, you can run for Congress, and then you don't have those problems. You still face the same problems and struggles because you might have to be worth a billion dollars, but in order to get that chairmanship, you have to be able to bring in fifty billion dollars in donor money or whatever. You know, I mean, it's just it's it's far more complicated than you think it is, and there there are a lot of interests within within any sort of institution, especially when you have in when government where there's so much money at play. Yeah, my Twitter account says that people don't appreciate it. You know, you said yeah, you don't right. know if people appreciate it. 
My Twitter account, the replies I see uh, at times suggest that people do not appreciate um, what's going on. There is this impression constantly that the members of Congress are actually reading the bills and are doing the (laughs) work. I get this all the time. Whenever I um, criticize one of these massive bills that passed – um, you know, it would be like thousands of pages and they pass it within 24 hours after revealing the text. And people will say, come on, Justin, they've been working on this for months. And don't you know, it went through committee and this other stuff. <laughs> and and of course, this bill didn't go through the committee. Um, yeah, sure. There are certain provisions that went through committees or were vetted in one way or another, but certainly not by the entire body of of Congress and certainly not in this form. And also the details matter, like changing a comma can sometimes change the whole meaning of a provision in a way that affects people very substantially. So you have to read this stuff carefully. And the idea that we can just launch uh, 2,700 page bills on someone and say tomorrow you're going to vote on it is totally ludicrous. And there are people in my replies who really defend this stuff. And I, you know, when you ask yourself why doesn't why doesn't it get corrected, it's it's the people in the replies who are causing it not to be corrected, yeah, because right. the the yeah. politicians know they can get away with it. As long as CNN and MSNBC and Fox News and the New York Times and Washington Post and the people in the Twitter replies don't care at all about the process, well, what do you think is going to happen with the process? Do you think people are going to read the bills or or care at all? Um, about what they're passing, they're not going to care because you don't care. You know, the, the public is not caring and, and that has to change. Um, I, a lot of times it's, it's based on just a lack of understanding of what's going on. I think there are people in the Twitter replies, for example, who really are unaware of, of how bad it is. And they do think that, Actually, these people are working hard to get the job done uh, for people at home. And 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 like you said earlier, it's just a matter of replacing the bad ones with good ones, and that's what's going to get it done, right? The, for a lot of people, the view is, oh, there's just bad Republicans, and if only we had more Democrats, it would work perfectly, and these people would do their job, and they'd read the bills, and et cetera. And there are others who think the opposite, who think, oh, if only we got rid of the Democrats, then – things would work great but actually the whole system is messed up and it's not just about replacing any of these people with other people like there's a there's a structural problem in the system that needs to be addressed and it's very complicated like when when people say what is the one thing that can fix it it's not easy to fix it's um it's it's a very top-down organization the one obvious way to fix it is essentially a miracle, which is you get a Speaker of the House who runs on being the same old type of Speaker of the House that we always have, Nancy Pelosi or Paul Ryan or John Boehner, but actually is a revolutionary in terms of of how that person operates and is willing to, um, you know, totally upend the system and allow people to participate. But, you know, that's... That's a longer story. We can talk about that more uh, later on. But I wanted to ask you, because I actually don't know, I don't think we've ever talked about it. How did you come to be a libertarian? 
Uh, <clears throat> that probably start. That was back in college, so uh, University of Michigan, um, and it was an accident. So I guess I would probably be, if, if anything. I, <laughs> I love that it was an accident. Right. It wasn't. It wasn't like I was on a, uh, a road to discovery, trying like trying to figure out things. I, I don't think I had enough. Um, I don't think I, there's enough self reflection or, and, uh, at that time, I was sort of a. I guess you'd say a soft Republican it, growing up in, in uh, school, in high school and stuff. And my family was kind of Republican-ish. I mean, they support like Reagan and Bush is okay. Uh, yeah, then the Iraq war happened when I was uh, when I was in high school. I think it was like a junior when that happened. Was that 91 probably? Uh, anyway, I went to Michigan and then Michigan is very left-wing and didn't feel right to me. The most, you know, the, most of the politics there. And I, I joined the Michigan Review, which is a, um, which was I think initially it was an extension of the National Review, probably when it first started in the nineteen, I think late eighties, maybe uh, mid eighties. But by when I was there, the the Review was pretty much a libertarian uh, alternative newspaper. So that's a it was a weekly or biweekly newspaper on uh, Michigan's campus. Mm-hmm. And so I joined. You know, when you get a freshman, you kind of just sign up for a bunch of stuff. I was an engineer, and so I. But I would I had interests that were outside engineering, and so I wanted to do some something different. And so I was always always kind of interested in politics in general. I mean, it was, seemed very much like a game. You know, you watch the map turn red or blue at, during a presidential election, and um, and so I joined the review, and we had discussions there about. And there were a number of guys who were very opinionated who were libertarian, and so then I I started. I sort of sampled libertarianism there, I guess, on accident. And then I went to a talk uh, as a freshman because I thought one of the things I want to do on campus is trying to is see all the things that you can't do when you're in high school, like interesting speakers who come on campus. And so I went to an objectivist. Uh, I can't remember his name right now, but he came out from a, the Objectivist Institute or something like that. And it was his speech was titled Why Buying American is Not American. And he just made the case of why it's, not a good idea. And that was held by the objectivist club, which is, I don't know, probably like 12 people or maybe like 10 on campus. And so I went to a bunch of their stuff for probably about a about two years. And then you study Ayn Rand and you're, you know, of course, read Antla Shrug by this point and you're studying her philosophy, AZA, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it just became, it was really hard that I, just, I couldn't, I couldn't swallow all of the objectivism. But I still carried on the review. We still had very libertarian sort of notions. I mean, at that time, if you called yourself a libertarian, people assumed you meant liberal. There was no one really was familiar with the term. I mean, for the most part, unless you're really in the weeds in um, political philosophy or you know, um, poli sci major might know what it is. But for the most part, uh, maybe they wouldn't even know. And so that's kind of how I got involved. And then I got I got involved a little bit in the Libertarian Party of of Washtenaw County, and I ended up as a delegate to because it's not it wasn't hard. <laughs> becoming a delegate to stay at, so I became a national delegate to the 1992 convention in DC where uh, we nominated Harry Brown and so I went with Martin Howerlack and Martin uh, just finished a, two or three years ago he was a in the state house as well yeah uh, I don't think he served with you I think it came after you yeah he he uh he and I did not serve together but right so um, I do I, I do did. see that he likes some of my tweets from time to time and, and hits the retweet so yeah, presumably, uh, presumably he stayed true to his principles. Yeah, Marty's real good, and, and he and I went to, we drove to, he drove to DC and went to the convention, had a good time, and and then I was sort of just a 
and I've been reading Reason Magazine at this point for probably about two or three years. And so Reason Magazine was kind of my, it was my way of getting news outside of the usual news sources. And, and then it got to the point where unless I saw Reason, I, I had trouble reading any news that was not through Reason, not because, just because of the libertarian lens, but because I felt like most, most like uh, papers or you watch a news story, it was never in depth enough. I, you never really felt like you got any part of the story. And then I, I things are just far more nuanced. And that's one thing I recognized very early on. And so I think it's very, it was, I just wasn't buying the tribal sort of the, the Democrat Republican thing. And, and if we're from a political aspect, you know, the right left uh, mm-hmm. aspect of things. And so, and especially once you've entered libertarianism, you're forced to sort of think about things, think things through a little bit more, I think. And, um, you know, wherever you may land on, on topics. So anyway, so then I went to med school and from there I kind of stayed sort of aware of what's going on with politics, but I was busy. And so I did a couple of things with Libertarian Party, but it wasn't until I got back to West Michigan, when I moved back to Michigan in 2004, that I got involved with Libertarian Party. I ran for office, you know, statewide office a couple of times. And so that's kind of... That's my origin story, I suppose. Does it ever come up in your work as a doctor that you're a libertarian, like your your colleagues? Um, is that a thing for them? I don't know. Is the medical community uh, particularly left or right, or does it, it really depend on the does it depend on the practice? Uh, well, I mean, so I, I mean, it, the general answer is I probably doctors are probably where it just depends where you are, right? Like if you're in, in Ann Arbor, I imagine most people are. Democrats. Here in Grand Rapids, I think most people are probably Republicans in general. Um, and, and it depends what specialty you are, right? If you're certain specialties are more likely to be Republican than Democrats too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and, and so for me, it was, I went from Ann Arbor to Iowa city, which was politically, it was leading like, <laughs> I always would joke. It was like going from liberals who smoke pot to liberals who drink beer, but it was pretty much the same sort of politics. And in the OR in, Iowa City, you just, I mean, everyone was a, everyone was a Democrat pretty much. Um, and you didn't, there are certain subjects you just didn't talk about. And that came to Grand Rapids and it was like culture shock. It was like someone dumped a bucket of cold water on me because now people are talking, they're all kind of Republican or conservative. And they're talking about things that we didn't talk about before. We never talked about like how many kids you have. Like if you said you had three kids in Iowa City, people thought you were crazy. Like why do you have, and then, or you'd never talk about going to church, for instance. And so in Grand Rapids, it was, just more like, oh yeah, I went to church Sunday, and I don't know, it just was you know, wouldn't. It's not like you're evangelized. You just kind of say, yeah, I just went to church Sunday, <laughs> and that just was a kind of a taboo sort of subject in Iowa City. Uh, huh, that's so, interesting. Yeah. I because I would think of when I think of Iowa, obviously I think of it being kind of conservative. Yeah, but not Iowa City, right? It's yeah, it's like anything, right? It just depends where you are, right? If you're mm-hmm. downtown Grand Rapids, it's a lot different than if you're suburban or uh, the rural areas uh, in the state. Just you know, politics are just different. We're, we're urban, rural, whatever. Uh, but as far as like in the OR, I, I mean, the libertarianism kind of comes up, but we don't. People don't usually get too political in general. I mean, you know where their political stances are, I suppose. But they know you're doing political things, right? Because you, oh, yeah, and I think you do a podcast, um, yeah. the paradox, and mm-hmm. yeah, uh, and your views are not unknown. I mean, you've run for office, uh, yeah. so like people know that you're a libertarian. But I, I mean, so I think people generally like me. I'm a likable person. I think. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. So I mean, I, so I don't have a lot of conflicts, and so it's it's very. And I'm not pushing my politics. I'm not. Uh, I don't berate people if they're the wrong things. I we talk about things all the time, and I, 
you know, there's, there's a sensibility to being a libertarian in many ways. You can talk to anybody mm-hmm. and you can oftentimes find agreement on lots of things. And, you know, there are definitely times when I recognize that when saying things that people just don't agree at all. And, you know, whether it might be, you know, now we're talking about Ukraine and conflicts and stuff. And I think, yeah, I don't know that anyone's in the, in the right in this instance. And I think I'm just generally for no conflict and we should try and find some resolution. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, people are, I don't know, maybe it's Grand Rapids, but people in general don't get that invested in politics. I think in, like most people don't care or are willing to go to the bat about politics until COVID. I mean, I think, then things change a little bit, but I feel like before then, you can't talk about anything and people disagree like, yeah, okay. I don't know. I guess it depends on how much, you, how far you push, but maybe I just have enough in emotional intelligence that I know when to not push and you just, yeah, because I want to just get along with people. I'll talk about other stuff. I don't need to talk about politics all the time. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's take a caller. Um, let's go to Matthew. You there, Matthew? You got to unmute yourself. Maybe Matthew took a break. All right. That that unmuting yourself. I don't know. Either uh, Matthew is gone temporarily or has not yet figured out the mute system here. Um, Matthew, uh, we'll come back to you if you if you come back up. Let's go to Andre. Hey. Hey, Andre. How you doing? Hey. Good to be talking to the future president of the United States and uh, Justin Amash here. <laughs> uh, my question uh, for both you guys, I guess, is uh, for a lot of people, uh, once they get a little taste of power, it's a little harder to be libertarian. So uh, I got kids. Uh, can you guys talk about it? Uh, what it's like for you with uh, at home is—is is that a thing? You know, are you a libertarian just politically, or is that uh, how does that uh, connect with your home life? So, is the question for me, Andre? Uh, well, both actually. I mean, you both have kids, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, I don't know if you want to take this first, or you want me to take it first, Eric. Well, I'm actually kind of curious what you, how what's like in your office because <laughs> only because you're you're home less. I mean, now you're you're home more, but it was for you it was different because you were gone a lot when your kids were growing up. So I'm kind of curious how it was like in your household. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, when you're gone a lot when your kids are young, that's what they're used to, right? Yeah, so sure. it's not it's not like um, a shock to them that you're not around uh, for sometimes a few weeks at a time because that's just, that's what they're accustomed to. So um, that wasn't a big issue and, and coming back um, wasn't a big issue in, in that sense in that like, Oh, like he's finally back, you know, uh, they, they were just used to my traveling a lot, but I would say that, um, well, I have pretty well-disciplined kids. So, in terms of do I have to run some kind of 
hardline home or anything. No, uh, I don't think that's the case because my kids are, are pretty well behaved. I would say that I really encourage free thinking in my household. I um, like to have open conversations with them. I have spoken to them about things that are maybe uh, more adult topics from when they were very young because they live in this world and I think they should understand that the world is a diverse place with a lot of things going on and they should you know have their own opinions on things and think through things so I've been uh, I've been very much an advocate for free thinking free ideas that doesn't mean we don't have rules because libertarians aren't against the idea of rules they're against the idea of um, arbitrary rules, rules that are, um, you know, for no apparent reason or or unequal in their application. So, for example, if I were treating one kid one way or another kid another way, that's you know that's a thing that a libertarian would be very strongly against um, if they're behaving in the same way, but. You know, for the most part, our house has some, you know, pretty clear rules. I'm not changing the rules on them, and we encourage free thinking in our family. Yeah, for for my family, uh, I would read the kids Atlas Shrugged every night before they went to bed. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's like, did you do that? <laughs> no, um, I think very similar to to you. I think, I think. Rules are important and sort of understanding the limitations in the world has rules and limitations mm -hmm. uh, that you and you have them set up uh, in ways because it helps them navigate the world more when they have structure and kids without structure are oftentimes, I think, struggle. Some kids need more than others. And I think you just with your kids, you recognize ones that need more structure than others. And I think that's just every kid's different and in what they're interested in. And, uh, we never would as far as like, you know, politics and stuff it was never a secret what politics were in our house and uh, my, you know, kids would tease me about it and some were more interested than others. And we just talk about stuff. And I think just to, to your point, I think, you know, we, we would be willing to discuss things. I mean, my wife's a pediatrician. And so we oftentimes talk about a lot of medical stuff at the table. So my kids got a big dose of just weird stuff, you know, not much bothers them when you talk about gross stuff at the, t at the kitchen table. So we, um, I, I would one funny story though is our wives are very good friends um, and they spend a lot of time together and uh, we watched Justin's youngest once and she was probably oh she was probably like fifteen months or so maybe twelve and anyway she went into my office and she came back holding a U.S. Constitution <laughs> so then so my wife put that away and then she went back into the office. And she came back with Atlas Shrugged, which <laughs> she just picked two random books, which I thought was hilarious. I mean, it's just like random stuff, but it was 15 months old. But, uh, so I don't know what you guys are doing in your house. But I, I think, you know, as a parent, it, the parents are very challenging. It's a, it's a very hard job. And it's, um, it's one where it's unpredictable. And I think you meet kids where they are. And, uh, and, but I do think it's important to have, to have, to have expectations. And so to your point, the arbitrary nature, nature of, of rules is what you want to avoid and and you want to make sure that when you have some sort of boundary that you hold by it so 
if you have a the, the one thing you don't want to do is like have a punishment and then never enforce it. Like say, mm-hmm. if you do this, I'm, you know, turn this car around. Well, they're going to realize that that's a, an empty threat. So at some point you've got to really turn the car around or whatever it is. So we were very careful to always, whatever we said, that that was actually something that could happen. Like maybe we won't go to that, go to the swimming pool or something. And so you have to accept the fact that you may just ruin your day too. And so you have to be very careful about what you, what you set down. Because if you don't set those, those limitations, you have to you have to set expectations so they're reasonable and that they're ones that they they understand and you don't you don't want idle threats and you know i think it's no different when you have to deal with adults too right it's the same sort of process but it's more important for kids i think because you're you're entrusted with with raising them in the world and setting so they have the right expectations and and so they know how to get by through the in the world afterwards Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, I also had a question. My three-year-old wants to cook meth in the basement. Uh, wasn't sure if you guys had any opinions on that. Yeah, I think it's probably uh, a bad idea. <laughs> depends if depends how good a chemistry is. I mean, I think that's a question, really. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I don't know. I, it was something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Uh, we, I live kind of in a conservative area. Where we actually have a, a large population of Amish uh, around my area that I work with every day and politically yeah they're very like government stay away but then at home and even within the community it's a real I don't know dictatorship of the proletariat I don't know uh, so I, I just uh, I I, uh, I have a hard time uh, seeing how those two things connect sometimes and uh, well well Andre I would say rules are not bad as we as we talked about, right? But like scale, arbitrary, arbitrary, yeah, arbitrary rules are bad, in my opinion, at, at all levels of governance. But scale matters. It matters that your family is a smaller unit, and that you know each other really well, and that you are connected in a very significant and important way. That's very different from how you might be connected to bureaucrats in Washington D.C. You know, who don't, who aren't related to you, aren't connected to you, don't know anything about you, and are telling you how to live your life. Um, so it's important to think about those differences. The The scale is relevant that you're dealing with something at a small scale. And rules, I think, are an important part of libertarianism at any scale. But um, arbitrary rules are a real problem. And I, I would also add, by the way, because you know, I think this is important to mention – since you asked about it, I have never tried to impose libertarianism on my kids. So there's no effort in my house to tell them you must be a libertarian or, you know, (laughs) this is, this is a libertarian household and that's that or anything like that. I've tried to teach them about libertarianism through my actions. In other words, when they see me and see me as an open-minded person, when they see me as a person who is tolerant of others and respectful of others, when they see me as a person um, who believes in voluntary cooperation, when they see all those things, I think that they are brought closer to libertarianism. But I've never tried to impose it on them or tell them, you know, you must be a libertarian. I even, even I haven't even used the word that much around them, you know, as a as a as a specific, you know, concept, I have just tried to live it and hope that they see it and take something from it. 
Okay, great, great. Uh, thanks a lot, Justin. Uh, really look yeah. forward to seeing you as our uh, least powerful president ever. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I, you know, I, I obviously, um, I have not announced any run for president or anything. But I do promise that if I ever were president, I would be the least powerful president. Um, that that I can guarantee. I would I would definitely devolve power uh, from the presidency and and from the federal government. Um, so I have a question about that actually. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So uh, you know, one of the things that presidents have done, obviously, more is is um, is having more executive power and executive orders is sort of the way they get things done. And half your executive orders seem to be rescinding executive order, previous executive orders of the, of the previous administration. I mean, it's some, on some level, you, you'd have to come in and, and if you're going to get rid of all those that power, that executive order power, you have to basically do a bunch of executive orders to reverse all those things, right? I mean, yes, essentially. And then, uh, and then you just say, well, I'm not going to do any legislation through executive orders at that point, right? I mean, because I think that's probably the way you'd have to devolve power from the executive branch to the legislative and judicial or the states. Well, the the problem with executive orders is not that the executive is actually issuing an order, but that the executive orders are quite often not based in actual law. Right. In other yeah. words, there's not actually a law that authorizes the president to make such a a claim or such a push or to, to pursue such a, uh, a policy. And so they are issuing this order and it's not actually backed up by law. That's the problem. Unfortunately, if you come in as a president, there are so many executive orders that exist and executive orders are just the executive directing the federal government on how to operate according to law, you know, whatever yeah. the law is. And some of that will be valid and a lot of it will not be valid because it's not based truly in law. And so the difficulty coming in as a president is there there's so much on the books and in some cases it's not as simple as just well let's delete this executive order because you have to issue some other orders to tell some agency or whatever that exists currently how to function, you know, you're, you're directing them because you're the president and, um, the law sometimes is not fully spelling out the day-to-day details, right? Uh, the operational, the, the law, um, very commonly doesn't do that. You know, it's a, it's a broad guiding, um, direction for the government, but it's not telling you, for example, um, how many notepads you have to have in your office, but the federal government still has to buy notepads and staplers and do all sorts of things. So there are orders and some of them come from the president and some of them are the president issuing orders to someone else um, who then issues other orders. So unwinding all that is actually a lot more complicated than people might imagine. Yeah. Uh, it's it's easy for us to sit at home and say, well, get rid of all the executive orders, but some of them are valid, some are invalid some of them are very complicated. In other cases, you get rid of some, but you have to replace them with other orders that are valid. Um, so for me, it would be a focus on what are the blatantly unconstitutional things that are being done through executive order? And then you you move from there. Um, yeah. For example, I'll, g- I'll give you a good example. There's a lot of surveillance law 
that is handled through executive order. You could just wipe that out. You could say from now on we're not going to um, pursue information in this way. We're not going to collect data in this way because I don't believe that the law authorizes it. And so it's it's that simple. You say now the CIA and NSA and FBI are going to come back to you and say this is horrible. What are we supposed to do? Well, you're supposed to follow the Constitution, and if Congress wants to pass something that's explicit and constitutional, they're welcome to do so. Like, right, yeah, right, Don't come yeah. to me. Go to Congress and tell them what you want to do, and if there's some constitutional way to do it, then you can pursue it with them. But don't come to me and ask me to enforce something that I think is unconstitutional. Um, there's similar stuff with wars and emergencies where you could very simply say, look – this is not valid. It's not constitutional. We're not going to do it. And um, you're basically going to just put p- Congress on the spot and say, hey, if, if you want to do it, then you better pass a law to do it. And this would be fantastic because it would actually encourage Congress to function again as a legislative body instead of what happens now where it's basically the president giving directions to the Speaker of the House and the Speaker of the House right. – or, or the Senate Majority Leader are just um, twisting arms and using bribes and using extortion and other methods to try to get everyone to fall in line, and then there's just a take it or leave it product. That's not that's not legislation. That's just um, you know the executive branch dictating with some you know some small barriers in the way, um, especially if you have someone from another party in in a leadership position, um, like the speaker of the house or the Senate majority leader. Yeah. But, but yeah, you'd force the, the body to actually do its work again. And, you know, that's a, uh, it's not something I think anyone who's coming to the white house looks forward to is <laughs> sifting through all those executive orders. Sure. And it, it makes your job harder, right? Like it's a lot easier just doing it yourself and having a, well, it's easy being a dictator, right? That's essentially what you're yeah. doing. And you saw that with the governors, right? They they issued the executive orders, emergency powers, <laughs> sure. and they had, you know, un, indefinitely lengthened uh, in de- executive power. Where they could do all sorts of crazy things, even when like the legislatures are meeting and stuff. And so, I think those are things. I'm hopeful that those will change. But anyway, I think that's you know, it's a similar sort of process, right? Yeah, it was it was nuts what a lot of the governors did, and you know, and I've criticized. Biden for this, and I've criticized Trump for it. So, uh, for anyone listening who thinks I'm picking on governors, I've criticized, you know, all presidents about using emergency powers and how they've abused those emergency powers. Uh, but what the governors uh, did over the past couple of years has truly been crazy. Where they decided that because they don't want the legislature involved in the process, they're just going to issue an emergency order related to COVID. And that's that. They get to dictate from then on. And so you had emergency orders going on long after there was an actual emergency in the sense of, you know, there is a sudden thing that's been, you know, put upon us and the governor needs to make a quick decision. We all understand why a governor or a president might actually issue an emergency. Like there's something that happens very suddenly. The legislature doesn't have time to deal with it. You suddenly need to get bottles of water to someone or you need to go, um, you know, repair some bridge that collapsed or whatever. There's like some emergency that happened. Uh, Tornadoes hit a town and you have to quickly 
um, you know, put resources there to address that issue. We understand why someone might issue an emergency order because there's not enough time to actually appropriate the funds or legislate in the normal course of business. But you can't possibly believe that that's valid after even a week or two. Um, and certainly not months or years, as we saw with some of these governors where – Still, yeah, yeah. Yeah, where like years into it, they're like, oh, we're still on emer- an emergency. I'm like, well, don't we have a legislative branch? What are you, what are you talking about we're on an emergency? The, you don't get to just say the word emergency and then become the legislative branch. Like the legislature is supposed supposed to legislate – and the fact that there are people who disagree in the legislature is not some kind of flaw. That is the <laughs> system. That's you know that is right. that is its function. It's they they view it as some kind of like an unfortunate barrier that's been set up. Like, can you believe the flaw in the system? We have to wait for legislators to agree on what to do with COVID. Like, no, that <laughs> is the system. That's what democracy is. Which, which goes to another point I've tried to emphasize to libertarians. Stop running away from the idea of democracy. Like, it's the other parties that don't believe in democracy. It's these Republicans and Democrats who do things like emergency orders to build a wall or to deal with COVID. These are the people who don't believe in democracy. They believe in one person or a small group of people deciding everything for everyone. And... They can claim their forward democracy all they want, but the fact is when push comes to shove, they're not really interested in a representative system. They're interested in a few people dictating to everyone. So, you know, I've brought this up with Democrats talking about voting rights. So they want to expand voting rights, but then at the end of the day, the members of Congress who are being voted in don't have any power. They don't have any power because of these same Democratic leaders saying, no, uh, Nancy Pelosi's just going to decide everything, or Chuck, Chuck Schumer's going to decide everything, or Joe Biden's going to decide everything. What, what good are the voting rights if the people you elect can't actually then represent you? So, you know, libertarians need to push back on this stuff and bring up democracy and bring up voting rights and point out that the other parties don't really believe in this stuff. Um, you know, I, I've I've understood why at times libertarians have been reluctant to talk about democracy because they view it as sometimes um, at odds with the idea of liberty, the idea that you could have a majority vote, for example, and and tell someone that this is what's going to happen, can be at odds with liberty. It can be at odds with someone's you know personal decision making. Uh, but it sure is a heckle of a lot better than having one person in government dictate to individuals. I'd certainly prefer a system of uh, government operating by a majority to government operating by one person or a few people. So, you know, I think we need to um, take back this idea uh, of democracy and, and reclaim it, which, which is what von Mises talked about and Hayek talked about, they weren't afraid of democracy. They, they actually um, promoted it, not as a cure-all for everything, but as the best available system when you have large governing structures like a federal government or like a state government. So, so what do you um, – what, what brought you toward anesthesiology? 
what was it about that that was and does it connect with libertarianism in, in, in any way from from your perspective i know this is your theory that it does in some way but it doesn't well <laughs> well because because a lot of anesthesiologists have to be supporters of yours <laughs> yeah i have noticed that there are a lot of libertarian anesthesiologists i think well, that I, it is i think that it is um it's not just that I've experienced it in my own life. That's that is true. I've experienced it, or I've run into a lot of libertarian anesthesiologists. But um, I I've seen it like elsewhere, like in the world, online and elsewhere. I'll, I'll find people who are anesthesiologists who are libertarians. I think at a higher rate than you might find yes. in other professions. I think you're right. So the to back up initially. So I at University of Iowa. I, did my medical school you had to you had required rotations for all sorts of things uh usually you have required rotations like family medicine internal medicine obstetrics psychiatry surgery and then those are your core and then when you're a senior resident you take specialized uh, rotations in uh either deeper in medicine like cardiology nephrology or um, ophthalmology surgical soap specialties as well radiology perhaps and at iowa they what they found is that if you would say, let's say you came into med school, you said, I want to become a dermatologist. You would want it to take your dermatology rotation early so that you could then do a senior rotation. But if you, for whatever reason, let's say everyone wanted to do dermatology for some reason, then maybe you didn't get your dermatology rotation until later. And so now you couldn't get the senior rotation before the time when you've already looked for residencies positions and for the match as a senior resident or senior medical student. And so as a way of sort of making it fair, they just had everybody do all these short rotations in different things. And so you're just forced to dabble. And so I had never really thought about anesthesiology. I mean, I'd seen the anesthesiologist when I was on my general surgery rotation, uh, but it looked boring. I mean, they just guys just sitting down in a chair uh, and I, and you're never, you know, you're focused on that surgery. You're not really focused on anything else that's in the room because you want to do well in that rotation. And then I was, then I was forced to do my anesthesia. Now my wife, Marcy, did P you have to do pediatrics as a third year medical student. And she actually ended up doing anesthesia sometime in her third year, just by chance. It was just a two week rotation. And then we're at this point, we're married. I was thinking maybe ER because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I want to do something that's procedurally based. So I'm actually doing stuff and that's not slow pace. I had recognized early on that I didn't want to treat someone's blood pressure and wait six months to see if my, my treatment worked. Like see, I kept seeing the back. I, maybe just a you know, level of impatience, uh, needed a quick uh, instant gratification. And um, so then I, so I thought, well, maybe ER, that seems like a procedurally based, you see lots of people, you could see lots of things. And um, then I did anesthesia rotation after I'd done a, a senior rotation in Minneapolis uh, in ER right at the beginning of my third year. And I came home on the third day and I, because I really enjoyed it. I thought it was kind of cool what they're doing. And there's all this stuff that's going on that I didn't recognize when I was uh, doing the surgery. And I came home and told my Mar told Marcy, I said, yeah, I think, I'm gonna, I think anesthesia is pretty cool. I think I was going to do it. And she burst out in laughter because she thought for sure I was joking. Because she, she thought it was the most boring rotation she had in medical school. She thought, she said, there's no way you can like, think this is interesting. Uh, so I, I just, I found it interesting. And she felt terrible, of course. <laughs> I really did like it. And uh, so then I kind of re readjusted my schedule and went to anesthesia. But I think, to your other point, I think it is you are solo in the sense that you're not really working. You're working in a team. So you have to work with the surgical team. You have to work with the nursing team. You have to – it's a concert, right? You are working with everybody and everybody's got a role in the operating room to get someone to sleep safely, to keep them asleep, to you know optimize for surgical conditions, resuscitate a patient, et cetera. 
and then to wake them up and then get them to recovery and make sure they're okay afterwards. And so you very much have an important role in that, just like the surgical team or the, the surgeon, uh, but you are kind of by yourself. And so, and it's, and it seems to be a sort of a more structured kind of process. And so as far as like, you know, you have your own little spot where you put all your drugs and how you have them all drawn up. And so I think you have more individualist like people who tend to end up in anesthesia. And, um, and so that, no question that that's the case. Like, you know, if you talk to pediatricians in general, they're going to be much more communitarian. I think it's probably is a way to put it is and preserve their thinking. And so it just, that's just the types of people it tends to attract. I think people who tend to be more individualistic, I guess. And so it's not surprising that you might find a more libertarian sort of bend to people who are in anesthesia. Yeah. Let's go to um, Tyler. Hey, Tyler. Hey, Tyler. Tyler, you're somehow muted. Uh, you're not muted visibly. I am? But, oh, there you go. Oh, now he muted himself again. Now you <laughs> muted yourself again, Tyler. You there? Come on, Tyler. Can, can you not hear me? Now, we just heard you. Try, okay. uh, try a sentence and let's see what happens. Uh, I was wondering if okay. we could call this. Uh, yes? Yeah, you're here. Yeah, yep, you're we here. can hear you. Okay. Sorry about that. I, I was wondering if we should call this uh, a reunion episode of The Amash Files. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Uh, but for anyway, those who don't know, so you know, Tyler and I had we had a podcast briefly for called the Amash Files that we put together during Justin's very brief flirtation with the the very president, brief, very yes. brief flirtation with uh, running for president is on the Libertarian ticket. What two years, three years ago, two years ago now? Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry, Tyler. No, that's fine. Uh, I'm going back a bit, but I wanted to say this ever since the beginning. Uh, the Expanse books are so much better than the show, and you are doing yourself a disservice if you don't read them. <laughs> All right, uh, I'll have to. I'll have to check them out. Are they long books? Um, uh, probably like three hundred pages ish. Not not super long. They read yeah. fast. I think it's a fast read. I, I, you know, I I remember you posting that, Tyler. And I I a little bit disagree with you. They're they they're a little bit different than the book, but I felt like uh, or the show, and I felt like the first five six books or five books, let's say, I knew ex- pretty much everything that was going to happen because it would pretty much happened in the show. I know there's some subtle differences and they're, and because, but then after that, it obviously gets pretty good too, but I, there are definitely some like anything, right? There's just more stuff in the books and the books are better than the show, but the show, I think is still fantastic. Uh, and it's, it's one that I recommend because not everyone's going to read this book series, but I do think that the show is very good. Do you think there is any show that's better than the books? Cause people always say that one. people always say the books, people always say the books are better than the show. Uh, yeah, uh, I honestly can't name one. I think I think I'm learning that adaptations are always worse for me. I bet you nowadays. So before, I think all the the media was more movies, and so I think you could never encapsulate a book very well into a movie because a movie is very short. And but now with television series, you probably can do more with a television series than you can do with a with a book. 
just because you can get into mm-hmm. character development a lot better, I think, because you have got, you know, maybe 10 hours to work with someone instead of three. I wonder, I'm like, Handmaid's Tale, I didn't read that book. I mean, I think that the show was very, very good. So I, I would have to rely on someone. And obviously, it's gone beyond where the book went. But I don't know if someone could comment on that the first season if you guys read the book. I haven't read the book, no. So I, I can't I tell you. I read the book or seen the show. Yeah, but I don't know. People always say that the books are better than the show. And, yeah. and I do wonder if that's some kind of bias of people who just like books or if that's just like a thing people say <laughs> because it – I don't know. It somehow sounds – it sounds more good. Intellectual. To, yeah, it sounds more intellectual or something to say that the books are better than the show um, because I'm – you know, there might I'm be big, some of that. I don't know. I'm a big fan of shows. I don't – I honestly don't read a lot of fiction books. Um, I'm a big fan of the show and a lot of other shows. Um, I, I find arts and entertainment fascinating generally, you know, movies, TV, um, other types of performance. In fact, I think it's, um, some of the most amazing things that, um, humans accomplish is in performance. Like I'll, I'll watch a TV show and, um, whether it's the direction or whatever it might be, the acting, I'm like, boy, this is really, this is really an achievement for humanity. When I watch this stuff, <laughs> and yeah. and um, and you know, just the way a particular show might make you feel. And I'm not sure, like when you read a book, you don't have music, for example, um, sure. which can add to the drama of something. When you read a book, maybe maybe there's something better about having someone else present what the character looks like and what is the dialogue and how does the person you know feel. Somehow you can sense it more in a show than in a book. I'm not sure. Yeah, I would. Yeah, and I now that I think about it. I think the Harry Potter series is actually a pretty good example of where maybe the maybe the book is not as good as the 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 film or the the movies. I, you know, I think you could argue there there's some things that aspect the books are better, but in some ways I think the films are really good. And I think they're because to your point, I think you can have you can see the magic, you can see the you can hear, feel the the tension, yeah. you can see the characters, and uh, you know when it's well done. I don't. I think that might be an example. Now that's a kids' book in some respects, but. That might be a good series that is where the, you know, at least it's at least in par with the book or maybe in a different way. Yeah. Well, you got anything else for us, Tyler? Yeah, I didn't mean to go on that long tangent about books. Uh, no, no problem. I'm glad we did. Uh, so it's related to something you guys were talking about at the beginning, particularly congressional dysfunction. Uh, Justin, I don't know if you remember that time you came down uh, to speak at Hillsdale when I invited you there. Yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. A ways back. So one of the one of my professors is in the crowd, and he he asked a question, but he started with with by saying, "You are the one exception to public choice theory in Congress today." <laughs> uh, I don't I don't know if you agree with that. I certainly did. Um, but related to that, it kind of got me thinking. You talk to a lot about people come in, claim to have principles, they get a taste of power, they abandon it, or think they have to be effective. Is there actually congressional reform that that can sort of overcome public choice, or is this just an inevitability of a legislative structure? I think that if you actually ran the legislative branch 
the way it's supposed to run. In other words, if members of Congress came in, and I'll speak specifically about the House because that's where I served. If members of Congress could come in and debate things on the House floor and offer amendments relatively freely, not totally freely, there has to be some structure, obviously, but relatively freely offer amendments and take a bunch of votes. Actually, the modern era where there's so much transparency and communication would lend itself to a much better run system today than say, you know, 50 years ago where there just wasn't much oversight. So it's, it's kind of ironic that in old times, 50 years ago, 70 years ago, they ran the legislative body in a more democratic way Not totally. Obviously, there were still backroom deals and other things, and nobody's saying that the system was perfect. But there was more of an ability to come to the House floor and to participate in the process if you had an idea and to get a vote on something and to actually be um, an effective legislator in the real sense where you can go and affect change in Congress. Um, But there wasn't actually a lot of transparency back then, so there was no one to watch it. Nobody at home – could actually see it, and um, there wasn't a lot of accountability. So people could could come to the House floor and participate, but actually they were often offering very bad ideas uh, because it wasn't being monitored by the outside world. So someone might come to the floor and offer a really impassioned speech and have a debate on some earmark for their community that was going to personally benefit them. Now, that's not a good thing that they were trying to do that, but it's a good thing that they were able to participate in that way. These days, if you had um, a system that was more democratic, more representative, where people could participate, you also now have all of the oversight because of social media and because of the 24-7 news coverage and cameras everywhere, etc., that you might actually get better a better product. You will have certainly some level of grandstanding where people come and they try to just do sorts of messaging efforts. But those things can be voted down. There's nothing – there's no reason members of Congress can't vote that stuff down and move on to the next thing. And in a lot of ways, from my experience, if you want to silence a lot of the grandstanding, a lot of the nonsense, um, you know, tactics that are used just to embarrass or for partisan political purposes, there's nothing that's more effective at silencing them than allowing them to actually have their vote on the floor and being defeated. You know, just – let them have their debate. Let them have their vote. And if they go down in flames, you move on. They can, they can say, look, I tried, and then they don't have much else to say. You actually fuel their nonsense when you don't let them participate. They then go publicly and say, look, nobody's letting me do this. I can't even go make this argument on the House floor, and they keep complaining about it over and over again. So I think um, – you know. You should open up the system. This will require the Speaker of the House to make a change. And I think that's the toughest part about this. There, there's really a roadblock there where the Speaker has to be the person who decides to make this change. And so part of what I'm doing on the outside, whether it's through this podcast or through my work in the Libertarian Party and through other projects I'm working on, a part of my goal here is to highlight this problem with the structure of Congress and to try to create some outside pressure 
that might come to bear on the Speaker of the House, whether it's a Democratic Speaker of the House or a Republican Speaker of the House or whoever it might be, to change the system. And we should have the same pressure on the President of the United States, um, regardless of who it is, whether it's Biden or Trump or anyone else, to um, not uh, operate through executive decree and not sign bills that aren't um, put through a normal legislative process. For example, if I were Joe Biden, regardless of what I thought about this recent funding bill, regardless, so forget the forget what I think, whether I'm for it or against it, but let's say I'm Joe Biden. I'm even for the recent funding bill if I'm Joe Biden. But But it comes to my desk, and I know that it was introduced just 24 hours earlier, and nobody read it. It's 2,700 pages. I would say, no, this is, I'm not signing this. I'm not signing it. So you guys can get your act together or it's going to be vetoed. Even if it's a bill that I support, I would say that. Because more important than any one bill getting signed by the president, even if it's a bill you support, is that our system actually functions. And it's not acceptable for us to keep operating on this ends justify the means um, sort of approach. Because at the end of the day, that just leads to tyranny. There's no, there's no genuine democratic system that can operate this way because it's, it's just going to be to the victor go the spoils. In other words, when um, Donald Trump or someone like him gets back into office, he's just going to do the same thing. They'll just run it by decree and they'll just ram stuff through. And it won't be read, and then they'll get their way for a little while, and then Democrats will do the same thing. Eventually, this kind of system breaks down into a more substantial sort of conflict between people. I don't think it can it can stay like this forever. Eventually, people start to um, figure out that this is all performance art, and what matters really is just who has more, who has greater numbers. And as soon as we live in a country where people think to themselves, well, whoever has greater numbers just gets their way. The whole system collapses. So I think that if you're a responsible president, you say, if legislation comes to my desk and it's not done through the proper process, I'm not signing it, even if I support that legislation. And that's the way you address this. But again, it takes getting the right person elected to these high offices. I don't think there's any way for rank and file members you can say all you want um anyone listening can say uh, you know i love thomas massey or i love justin amash when he was there but rank and file members have no power there's no power to do anything i i've said um previously i have just as much power as thomas massey i can do the same exact things neither of us can get a bill passed in congress and that's not an indictment of him. People people think when someone says like um, about a member of Congress, oh, you can't get any legislation passed. They think that's an indictment of the legislator. That's not. That's an indictment of the system. The reason that we can't get legislation passed is because it's a dictatorship. The Speaker of the House decides what comes to the House floor. The Speaker of the House decides whether it will be passed and what amendments will be allowed, if any, which increasingly is none. So to blame it on the people 
who are there who are who want to make a change and to say, well, you didn't pass any legislation. You're the problem. That's absurd. So, um, you know, I, I would say we have to change it. We have to change it at the top. Rank and file members have no power to really change it. Um, they would have a power if the power if you could get some kind of collective action where a bunch of them would team up. But that just seems very unlikely. You can't get more than 20 people, I would say, to team up on anything before they're picked off by leaders through promises and, you know, bribes and extortion and other things. So, Well, I know when you were in Congress, you had some attempts to unseat speakers of the House in the voting procedure. How many did you have when you were doing that? Yeah, so we tried uh, as that's a good example. We tried multiple times to remove speakers of the house. Um John Boehner was particularly <laughs> uh you know, uh someone we were going after. He ended up being actually the best speaker that I served under out of the three. John Boehner, uh Paul Ryan and Nancy Pelosi. Boehner was actually the best one. Um I'd love to have him come on this podcast. I talked to him for a while about that. It'd be interesting. Uh, but I tried to oust him, and deservedly so. He should not have been Speaker of the House. Um, we tried to oust him, but we would get together maybe a couple dozen people, and you'd say to them, okay, if we all stick together, we can get rid of John Boehner. And for sure, we had the numbers. If you had a couple dozen people at certain times, you could get rid of them. There's no doubt about it. You could stop him from becoming Speaker. 100%. So it was just a matter of you guys sticking together. That's it. We actually would have a couple dozen people in a room. We'd say, look, we all stick together. He's gone. That's it. Case closed. And inevitably, these 24 people who you thought were the toughest people, they were the ones who were going to stick through it, and these were principal people, they'd get peeled off one by one, and you'd end up with like eight or nine people. And not enough to remove him from his speakership. So it's very hard, even with the most dedicated people, like people think of the House Freedom Caucus as some kind of devoted group of people. If you think the House Freedom Caucus has any more than, you know, maybe a half dozen people who are really dedicated to their principles, you're you're wrong. It's like a half, it's like a half dozen at most. They could have, um, you know, three dozen members and I would say maybe six will be actually pretty dedicated, if that. And they might be dedicated to principles that you and I even – we don't support. But I'm saying they'd be dedicated to principles, even if we disagree with those principles. Um, beyond that, it's not much. I mean they'll, they'll sell out for some you know, pretty cheap benefits essentially. Um, and so it's very hard to get these people – to do the right thing. That's why I think the movement has to come from the outside. It has to be through public support, a groundswell of public support pushing uh, against those on the inside. All right. Well, thanks. Good talking to you guys. Yeah. Thanks, Tyler. So Eric, um, I was going to ask you about anesthesia. Okay. And, when you're doing it, how do you do just general anesthesia or do you do other types of anesthesia? I do all sorts. So I do regional, general, and sedation. I guess you could say sedation, which is a varying levels of con- consciousness that you 
keep people in. So general anesthetic to a definition would be a medically induced coma that you put people into, and then you reverse that at the end. And then uh, a regional anesthesia is where you put a part of their body to sleep. Now, maybe you're doing a nerve block and you just put an arm to sleep, or you could do a spinal or epidural where you just put part of their body to sleep, uh, you know, like for a C-section or that's pretty much all we do spinals for now, occasionally for um, joint replacements like knees and hips. And then there's various levels of sedation. You just, you know, like for a colonoscopy or foot surgery, all kinds of different surgeries. And like today I had all um, what we call monitored anesthesia care, which is basically you run uh, an IV anesthetic that keeps people so not responsive, don't remember anything, but then they're not, but it's still maintaining basic functions. Like you could arouse them if you had to, or um, uh, that they, you know, they're breathing on their own. All those basic functions are taken care of. You have to worry so, about. So what's the most common anesthesia you'd use? I mean, general, I mean, which, which general type? General? A general. And that's what people think when they think of anesthesia, right? You're going for a gallbladder out and you're getting a general anesthetic. So why is it used instead of spinal? I understand you use spinal for C-section. It's Is that primarily so the mother can see the child when the child's born? Uh, no. Or so, is there some other reason? So the reason you do – the reason you do – well, one of the main reasons you do more general anesthetics is because most patients don't want to be aware of anything. And so – or like they, they'll come to you and say, I just want to be asleep, right? So sure. you can't do a regional anesthetic. Uh, spinal and an epidural, which are kind of the same in some ways. It's the same way of doing the same of different. It's a different way of doing the same thing. Uh, you could use those, but it depends on the type of surgery. So you can only do it on the lower half of the body, so to speak, right? Huh. If you want to do something intra-abdominally, unless it's low, like a C-section, you can do that under spinal. But if you want to take someone's gallbladder out, it's, it'd be very tricky to try and do that with a pretty much impossible to do that with a, um, with a spinal. Now you talk to people who, why, are so explain to me, why is it difficult with the gallbladder? It's just not in the right position because the gallbladder's it's high up in. So when you're doing a spinal, you're, you're basically taking out dermatomes and dermatomes are levels of nerves that come out. They sort of like the bands across your body. If you got out an anatomy textbook, like a thoracic 10, thoracic nine, thoracic eight, you sort of go up to the cervical spine, the thoracic spine, the lumbar spine. Mm-hmm. Each level has nerves that come out and around and they provide sensory um, sensation to a band of skin around your, your body, basically. So you need to have a level of anesthetic that covers that those dermatomes completely. <laughs> and um, and it has to be able to last long enough in order to, to complete whatever you need to complete. So that's another problem. So if you try and do something... If you did a C-section, it took you four hours. You could never do it under spinal, for instance, because it's a one-time injection. You could theoretically do it under epidurals where you're just continuously giving injections through mm-hmm. a catheter to maintain the, the numbness necessary. Um, and so that's why a lot of surgeries you don't do. But you talk to older people, like especially guys who are, you know, World War II or Korea, and they had, let's say, a hernia or they had their appendix out, they will often explain how they had it under spinal anesthesia. We just don't do it as often because there is a there is a time limit and how long it lasts because it's you can kind of think of it as like rate, filling up a glass of water and then the water sort of drains out the bottom. Mm-hmm. So you get a numbness up to a certain point and then it kind of goes back down. And, you know, if you're working on someone's uh, um, feet, you have more time than if you're working on someone's, you know, appendix because it's higher up or lower down. Than, than, and so that's sort of the, the, all kinds of other limitations. And then technically, it's a little bit more 
challenging. Sometimes you don't get the flow the right way in the, the central central spinous fluid, and so you may not get an adequate block. In which case, you have to convert to a general anesthetic too. So, so why um, use it for C sections instead of um, a general anesthetic? Right. So for so one of the risks with uh, with pregnancy is that you have uh, you're at higher risk for aspiration. So you have a you, you're always assumed to have a full stomach. So when you come in for anesthesia for you know they say don't eat or drink for eight hours or so because we want to have leave time for gastric emptying so we, your stomach is empty so that if if you have a lot of gastric contents it can regurgitate up once you go into sleep and you no longer have the reflexes i was hoping you know normally if you have you drink a glass of water and it goes down into your trachea you cough a lot and you cough it out well yeah. you don't have those reflexes under general anesthesia that's the whole point you do general anesthesia so you don't have those reflexes and if you don't have a secured airway that's preventing gastric contents from getting down into your lungs, contents get down there, and then you get, you're at risk for getting pneumonia and potentially severe complications. And so for a pregnant woman, they generally are more at risk for that because they have obviously higher intrabombo pressure from having a, a, a child. And so that they're, they're more likely to regurgitate. And that's you talk to women who are pregnant, they oftentimes have reflux problems like you know acid reflux because they have you know, just a lot of pressure pushing stomach acid up and stuff. And so in general, it's probably safer on some level to do a spinal because you, you maintain those reflexes and you don't have the problems with the regurgitation as much hmm. and worry about aspiration. Uh, the added benefit, of course, is that you get to see a child once born and you get to you'd be part of the birthing process because you're not able to do it like you can do it vaginally. Um, you know, but there's some places like in Brazil where it, they're, they all only do general anesthetics, I think. They don't ever do epidurals. Or, in fact, I think Brazil, their C-section rates like super high. The only people who don't deliver by C-section are poor people. And so it's just a difference in sort of approach to medicine. So I would say it is, the reason is because it's a little bit safer, uh, possibly too with nursing uh, afterwards. It might be, there might be some, uh, a sleepier baby that might not nurse quite as well after delivery if it's a general anesthetic because they were getting the anesthesia as mom is uh, during during general anesthetic. So those are the, those are the main reasons. Yeah. Have, have, um, C-section rates been going up like in the United yes. States over the years. And is that, um, is it because it's safer? I mean, I know like in the, in the old days, I mean, you can read about grandparents and people in older generations where they lost a lot of siblings in childbirth. Um, and mothers. That, yeah. And mothers. And is that because, maybe a C-section would have, would have saved them at that time, but it wasn't possible. Uh, yeah, probably. To... It, so it, this is a controversial subject in, in the obstetrics world because I think it, it is partly liability, the reasons that C-section rates go up, go higher. And so what happens is if you have a, an unusual presentation for the child, let's say you have a kid and normally the head's facing a certain way when they're delivered. That's like this, the normal way. Well, sometimes mm -hmm. the kid's flipped... 180 degrees the other direction. And so they are more likely to get stuck in the pelvis and it's harder to deliver them. And so that's why uh, obstetricians would use forceps. So they put in two paddles basically around the head and around the head and they turn the, the baby around into the proper position. So they would, they would be able to be delivered more easily. Um, there's obviously complications or risk for doing that. I mean, there can be the umbilical cord can be around the neck. You can maybe have a traumatic to the baby or to mother while you're doing that, uh, it, you might try it and it, and you get the baby up part way and not all the way. And then now you 
got into emergency C-section and, and other problems. And what happens is, as less and less people use forceps, the ability for people in training to be comfortable doing forceps to deliver and avoid C-sections goes down. And so they're more likely to get a C-section. Mm-hmm. Um, from, leg- from a litigation standpoint, if very, I think it's much more, much rarer to have people have trouble with um, being accused of not being negligent by not delivering by C-section. So it's always the, why did you wait so long and have a, the mother pushing for four, six hours, eight, 12 hours when you could have just C-section and that maybe now the baby would be okay, wouldn't have had these, whatever problems it might be. And so that's a concern. I think monitoring has been improved so that you can detect things that you probably couldn't detect before in the past. So in the past, like I talked to my dad who uh, was a, a family, I guess you'd say he's a family medicine, he's a general practitioner up in uh, Minnesota. Well, there's, you know, in 1970s, there, there's no, there's no monitoring of, of fetal heart tones or anything. All you have is a very small stethoscope they call a fetoscope and you listen to the baby's heart rate, but you're not listening continuously. So if the heart rate gets low or whatever, or has problems during contractions, you may not pick up on that. And so the the baby may have been in distress and you wouldn't have recognized it. And so now we have monitors that can monitor that much more carefully. You can monitor the baby's heart rate. So you're much more likely to deliver these babies with emergently through a C-section or say, you know, this is just not going well. And maybe in the past, those babies would have been all, most of them would have been okay, but you don't know which ones those would be, right? And so then you're more likely to, to use a C-section. C-section. So I think all those things contribute to the fact that C-section rates going up. And there are other things that people just like it because you can schedule it and, you know, and it seems easier than going through child labor, maybe. And, there are, and those are all things at the margins as well that I think contribute to the fact that there's more C-sections. So when you're using general anesthesia, where does the person go? You mean like, like their soul? Yeah, no, because... They're not really sleeping, right? No, you're in a coma. You're in a coma. So you're yeah. not asleep. Yeah, you're not, you're not experiencing REM sleep. You know, you're in a coma. So I, I guess that's a, I don't know if that's, if you're looking for the philosophical answer, but I guess the other, the answer is that they're, they're basic. Um, Anesthesiologists really functions. don't know, right? You like, like, do you know? Well, no, I mean, fundamentally, we don't even know how it, most of the things work, to be honest. Like we don't, it's almost like, it, it's almost like a light. I'm like trying to scare light. all the listeners as much as possible. Yeah, right. so. I mean, it's right. So, I mean, like light, for instance, is it a wave or is it a particle? The more you study one way, it seems more like the other. And the same things with anesthesia as far as like how it, the actual mechanism works for inducing uh, a coma and unconsciousness. But we know that it creates unconsciousness because people don't have recall and they don't, and they don't have experienced REM sleep. You do an EEG study, for instance, and know that you know, brain brainwave activity is is reduced, and so you basically reduce brain function. Um, but we know that when you turn off the anesthesia, the gas, and they breathe their way, and the concentration goes down, then they wake up. And so that's how we do anesthesia. And you you know that's what you train to learn how to the effects of all those things. And you know, if you, depending on the level, the amount of anesthesia you give, you can have more profound or less profound effects on a cardiovascular system and the you know renal system, all the you know, pulmonary system. What's so what's the longest time someone's been under general anesthesia? Well, I mean, for an actual surgery, that's probably a different question. There are people who are oftentimes put into medically induced comas in the ICU, for instance, for days uh, after um, traumatic events. Like uh, sometimes, So those can be a number of days, and I don't know what the record is, but 
for anesthesia, for like me personally, I've seen uh, 25, 26 hours. And so these, when I was a resident at, at Iowa, we would have these large neck dissections where someone would have a large tumor in their neck. And that's very delicate surgery. I mean, there's all kinds of nerves and vessels in the neck and the head and neck area. And so when you're trying to you know, remove all that, uh, you have to, it's just slow, tedious work. And so, and, and of course it's an academic center, so they're never quick. <laughs> so they tend to be a little bit slower because they're training oftentimes with working with the staff. And so those cases could sometimes last a day or more. And so you would, you would have, uh, we would always refer to that room if you got assigned that as a resident as the penalty box, because <laughs> it was a boring case. You just basically get them intubated. You run a certain level of anesthetic and you just kind of just sit there and watch them for hours and on end. When, when a person is under general, general anesthesia and then they are in the process of waking up, are they then sleeping briefly? In other words, do they, so. do they twist, do they switch to a, a state where they're sleeping and then they, I don't think so. I think it's, I, I guess I don't know the specific answer because I think, well, I'm in a, it, a bit of ignorance and sort what exactly is sleeping, right? Like if you, if sleeping is involves REM sleep, yeah. then, then I don't think you ever really go through REM sleep through If you did, it was like, it'd be super brief. I will run anesthetic sometimes with sedation and the people will say they had dreams. And so I assume they must've had REM sleep, but I don't, I don't know if that they just kind of remembered something right before they went to sleep or right as they're waking up and something occurred to them. So maybe they felt like, like I just don't understand. Yeah, I was just wondering if your body yeah, might transition to like a just a sleeping state as the general anesthetic starts to wear off, uh, where you're still That's just right. kind of sleepy, but your brain's starting to function again. Yeah, I don't know, and I don't know if that would if you call that sleep because I think in general, if you look at people, they they're not rested after an anesthetic. They usually are tired because they did not actually rest and sleep. Yeah, and what do you? Um, so you you wouldn't feel. That, that is a little bit unusual. You wouldn't feel rested at all. Like, yeah. um, and when people are coming to, presumably they sometimes, I've heard they sometimes say weird things or do weird things, or um, you've probably seen some weird, th- without like, you know, violating any oh, yeah. confi- I mean, I confidentiality, but like what kind of weird things have you seen where people uh, maybe act a certain way or say certain things and they don't even remember they did it? Yeah, I think I think the, the most common thing is people perseverate, which means they just repeat themselves. And so they'll ask a question like, how'd the surgery go? And then throughout two minutes later, they say, how'd the surgery go? And they say it like 20 times. And and so it's just, uh, so I think just there's a disinhibition that people have as far as, um, it's because, like they're, they con- because they're not remembering? Jump. Yeah, I think you just, your, your brain's just not, you're not, that part of your brain is probably just not functioning properly where you're forming short-term memory. And so I think you're just asking questions again and again, sort of like you had a concussion, I think it's probably a good way analogy. Uh, and by that, people act all sorts of different ways. Sometimes people are um, combative, not very common, but can occasionally happen. Uh, people who are, especially people who are elderly, they tend to have a lot of trouble with orientation and getting it. Just like if you're elderly, it's not uncommon to sort of have trouble knowing where you are, especially like if you're in the hospital, we call it sundowning. And so they have trouble because they're in an unfamiliar environment and they, they, sort of almost become delirious. Mm-hmm. And so you'll see delirium sometimes. Um, and you see it emotionality sometimes too. I mean, what you oftentimes see like in teenagers and boys, they tend to be more competitive and like ready to sort of punch someone in the face. And oftentimes in girls, you'll see them get very emotional and like cry. And so that's not uh, something that you, 
that's something you see very commonly as well. Hmm. Well, let's go to, um, let's go to Chris uh, as our next caller. Hey, Justin, can you hear me? Hey, Chris. Yeah. How are you doing? Right, thanks. Um, so I have a question for Justin and a question for Eric. Um, so Justin, you were talking kind of about federalism earlier. Um, something I think libertarians talk about a lot is how like we should let you know state and local governments make decisions. But I actually feel like a lot of times the state and local governments are just as bad. Do you think under if the federal government were to have any level of libertarian influence, whether it's a president or a congressional majority, would there be a role for them to kind of check the lower levels at all? Or do you think it only goes the other way? No, it, it definitely can go both ways. Um, and in fact, under our system of federalism, it does cut both ways. It did not as strongly when the um, Constitution was written, but then the 14th Amendment was added as an example. And the idea there was that the federal government could insert itself into certain situations to protect individual rights. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that that is not a bad function for a higher level of government to have, provided that um, the government is not dictating to lower levels what kind of system or what kind of law the lower level has to have. It's it's just there uh, to say that the law that you do have or the system you do have is treating people unequally or violating individual rights in some, you know, especially in some arbitrary way. So we have that right now with the Equal Protection Clause where the federal government can come to a state and say, not, hey, state, you have to do it this way, but, hey, state, you have a law that um, protects these people but does not protect the rights of these people. And... Mm -hmm the federal government can say that's a violation of the constitution and that has to be corrected. I, I don't, um, I don't see that as a uh, real danger to Liberty. It can be used as a defense of Liberty provided that again, the higher level of government is not dictating to the lower level exactly how to operate, but is rather saying the way you are operating is not treating people equally before the law. So I guess like some specific examples, like, could they dictate to the state, like, if there's, like, you know, a marijuana law or some criminalization that's too strict, you think they could just tell the states that they can't use those anymore? Or, like, if, um, like, New Zealand told uh, their state, like, their localities that they had to reduce, like, how strict the zoning laws were and, like, stuff like that, kind of. Like, if there's laws that are constitutional, but they're, you know, extremely harmful or, you know, anti-liberty I think mostly the federal government should limit itself to correcting um, uh, inequality before the law. So efforts by lower levels of government to discriminate against people on uh, the basis of some arbitrary characteristic. It could be um, race, sex, religion, it could be any number of things, but some arbitrary characteristic where the lower level is discriminating against people and the federal government comes in and says, look, we're not telling you exactly what law to have, but we are telling you that this law is discriminatory and needs to be corrected. Um, 
I think that is a fair function, and it could be in other areas. It could be, for example, you mentioned cannabis. It could be related to cannabis in some way. I can't think of the exact law where um, where you might come in and say that this is um, a problem. Sometimes, for example, the federal constitution has been incorporated uh, against the states, and what, whatever you may think of incorporation, this um, – generally means that individual rights are protected at the state level the same way they would be protected at the federal level. So there could be situations where a state government is violating someone's rights uh, under the federal constitution because the federal constitution applies to the states um, through incorporation. And the federal government then says this is a violation of people's rights. Yeah, you could have situations like that, and, and maybe some of those would relate to cannabis or, or other things. It could be related to First Amendment violations or Fourth Amendment violations and, and other sorts of violations. Thank you, Justin. Yeah, so, thanks. And then a question for uh, Eric as well. And since sure. you know, you're working in the healthcare sector, um, like in your personal experience, like what – I'm assuming you support free market healthcare. Like what – barriers do you see on your day that make uh, makes healthcare more expensive or less practical and like what steps would you take to um like reduce costs in healthcare without negatively impacting quality uh so the first thing i'd say is i'd recommend you just listen to my podcast the paradox <laughs> paradox uh, because I, we go into that a lot. Uh, I guess the question to Justin, you know, how much time do we have? But oh, we've got time. Uh, no, and actually, I'm, this I'm was this was going to be um, actually how we uh, we maybe finished up our our episode. So it's a good segue into that. So please, people people do want to know about free market healthcare and what is wrong with our healthcare system. And I know this can sometimes. I, I know you do a whole podcast on this. Yeah. Again, right. the paradox. Please listen to it. But um, but at least give us a taste of what you think. Might yeah. Be done. So I so I'll just begin. When I started this podcast in 2018, my my impression of healthcare in general was that we're doomed and that we're going to be nationalized. There was no solution, uh, and the medicine is just going to continually get worse and worse. Um, in some respects, medicine has gotten worse, and healthcare has gotten worse since 2018. However, I have spoken to so many people who are doing things that are going or they're fixing the system. Uh, that I'm much more optimistic and hopeful about about medicine in general. Um, and so the you're right that I don't believe in nationalized system. I don't believe in um, a collective response to taking care of, for healthcare because I think markets are important. They direct resources much more efficiently, both personnel and you know medications and sort of what sort of procedures we should do. And then any sort of thing you have that removes the um, the end user, which would be the patient. From the person providing the care, which we'll say is in this case the physician, or maybe it's a hospital, uh, is it, in this instance it would be a third party would be an insurance company, right? And so if you have the more barriers you have, the less likely you're going to have the right outcomes and the right allocation of resources. So we have probably created the most expensive healthcare system possible by the way we have our system set up. And so a lot, of, whether it comes to pharmaceuticals or hospital stays, we are many things in our system are designed to make it much more expensive and everyone in the in the middle is taking their cut and it to the detriment of physicians who are trying to provide care the way they want and have a personal relationship with patients and it also is to the detriment of the patients because they want high quality care as you mentioned earlier uh, but at a 
value price. And we see where markets work, like in LASIK surgery is always an example people use. You see prices generally go down or not go up much, and you see quality improving. And so that's where you expect if we had more markets in medicine, it would get better. So the question here is, how do you get it? Is you have sweeping legislation? Do you have at the state house? Do you do it at the federal level? And I've talked to a number of people who are doing things that are so innovative and uh, cool, I guess I'd say, is that they're, they're reforming healthcare despite all the barriers that are put in place by legislators, that are put in place by uh, regulatory bodies. And that's where the change is going to happen. And so some examples of that would be, um, I guess I would look first to the technology sector and you look at Uber and when you look at the taxi cab system, right? You had a system that now once Uber came around or a Airbnb would be a good example, you have, a, you have an unlocking of capital that wasn't present before and you have a prices that drop 90%, right? And so and at this point, there's such a huge financial incentive that no matter what kind of regulatory barrier or what kind of legislative barrier you put in place, it doesn't matter because people are going to flock to something that's you know, one-tenth the cost and they're getting probably oftentimes better service, right? And so there are many things in medicine that are now like that. And so that's why I think I'm very encouraged by this, that I think that companies are figuring this out and individuals. So examples, direct primary care. So this is a membership-based um, way of getting your paying for your physician. People are used to using membership-based um, payment models where now you have you have a doc who's just taking just cash for providing 24-7 care oftentimes. And um, it's usually a very reasonable price. So people can think of concierge medicine where they have like this personal doctor. It's kind of like that, but it's usually much less expensive. So concierge is usually very expensive and they usually have an insurance product on top of that. But direct primary care, you're paying 75, maybe $100, sometimes as low as $50 a month to have a personal physician uh, where you can see them as many times as you want. They can get a hold of them in text or whatever. They usually have very low overhead. So for a patient, it's great because you have a, a physician you know, and every time you contact the office, it's just that physician. And so you get the care and they know you. And if you're a physician, it's great because you have a personal relationship with a patient. You know them really well. Um, and you have very low overhead. So you can sometimes make as much revenue as you were making before, minus all the administrative headaches. You're not doing the charting. You're not worrying about insurance con contracts and, and things like that. And so it's a win for the physicians. It's a win for the patients. And uh, I mean, it's a loss, I guess, for insurance companies. Uh, but there are all kinds of things people can do with that. And, you know, I've got plenty of episodes in direct primary care, which I direct you to if you want to find out more about that. But it's so that is those people are direct primary care physicians are really good at then finding alternative solutions for people who don't have insurance, right? So they can find uh, reduced costs for um, procedures or for imaging or for laboratory work. And they can, and they will find you, you're paying one-tenth of what you pay with your insurance. And even sometimes your deductible would be far, far greater than what you're paying cash for lots of these services. Because these things aren't that as expensive. When you remove insurance companies and the, the third-party payers within the system, you can really significantly reduce the cost of lots of this care. And it's to the point where you almost think it's not possible. And what's happened now in the, in the larger medical sort of ecosystem is companies now are using direct contracting where now instead of them paying an insurance company like Aetna or Blue Cross Blue Shield to provide care for their, their employees, they will say, we're just gonna hire someone to process claims. And so when a, you know, one of our employees needs care, uh, they'll go through some processor, but then we're going to have someone contract with all the hospitals, contract the imaging centers, contract with the laboratories, contract with all the 
physicians in town, the different specialty groups, and they're going to pay some sort of rate that's a good market rate, which is going to be a lot less. Let's say probably on average about a third less than what they're paying now. So, you know, you can imagine if you're a large company and you're spending, say, $3 million in healthcare, you can save a million dollars by just direct contracting and get exact same care that you're getting now. Now you layer in a direct primary care physician and now your patients, your employees, I should say, instead of going to the hospital or the urgent care, now they just call that direct primary care physician who can triage them quickly and easily because they know them really well. They can either go into their office real quick, get sutured up maybe, and that's all part of the membership fee. Or they say, oh, you know what? I can see tomorrow and and I've got, I only have 500 patients I care for instead of the usual 2,000 or 2,500. That other, so I've got plenty of time to see you. And so you can, and and that same physician can also provide better chronic care for you because they're going to know your, your medications a lot better. They're going to be able to control your diabetes better or hypertension. Uh, and so your your sick days are going to go decrease as a as a corporation. So it's not unusual for these companies to, to save fifty percent of their healthcare. And so what has happened is that as these companies are moving to that system, and this is going to be like a self funded uh, insurance plan where they direct contract. They're just saving tremendous amounts of money. And there's stories that you would not even believe. Like there's a, and I don't remember the name of it, there's a drywalling company, a national drywall company. And they you know, have drywallers. All over the, and they will, they, they've saved so much in healthcare that they will actually pay for the down payment on people's homes who are their employees. They're like laying forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 down. So, you know, you get tremendous loyalty for your employees. And, and so you're radically transforming the healthcare space that way. And so they're, it, it actually gives me pretty excited talking about this because it, it is, I think this is the way you fix things. And I think you've heard many libertarians now who are focused a little bit less on the politics and the legislative aspect of solving problems and saying, how can we find ways to get around these problems? And, and this is the way you do it. And I think, so I think that I'm very encouraged by these sorts of things, but you have to go look them out if you're an individual. And if you're a small business owner, these people are all there. I mean, I've done plenty of episodes on people who do the direct contracting and it's not, and um, and there are plenty of other problems in medicine. But I think I'm encouraged because I think that this is the way you get that you've transformed. Because when enough people are doing this, then you don't have to pass legislation because everyone's decided to do have a much more efficient way of getting delivering the care, and they're providing you know superior care for their patients. And physicians are happier too. And so I think it's win-win for most people. Eric, don't you worry about the government getting involved and intervening in this kind of stuff? Like whenever I hear you talk about this, I'm always wondering <laughs> why is the government not tried to screw this up yet? And, you know, it's like how the government in um, California tried to s- screw up uh, ride shares, right? And you, yeah. you get this like – and now they're probably going to try to screw around with cryptocurrencies at the federal level. Like, Whenever something good happens in the free market that frees people, gives people more options, uh, protects people's rights, it seems like the government comes in and tries to screw it up. Yeah, well, I, no question. But I think that always is happening, right? It's always a tension of freedom and and tyranny, right? And so I think uh, you're right. But I would, I guess a great example, I think this is because direct primary care physicians for a long time, they're very small percentage, probably about maybe less than 5% of, of patients, probably not even, not even that, of people actually get care through direct primary care. But, you know, a good example is how many people get, how many people homeschool their children? And I think probably, I mean, definitely is up more now than it was, say, two years ago. 
but it's probably not more at, at, at the most it's what 8%, 6%. It's not a huge percentage, but you know, if you were a state legislator in the state of Michigan, let's say where we've had homeschooling for quite a while, we have, you know, pretty decent sized homeschooling communities. If you try to pass legislation to let's say outlaw homeschooling, I'm pretty confident that every single homeschooling parent would come and burn the capital to the ground. Right. I don't think you need 60% of, of people in favor of homeschooling in order to keep that constituency active and, and to keep it going. Likewise, when you now have Walmart that is saving a billion dollars because of direct contracting their health care, well, they're not going to be too keen on their congressmen or their senators taking that away from them. And so, yes, they're going to be battling the insurance companies and their, their regulatory bodies are going to be fighting too. But once you have enough money, monetary savings, and again, you're saving 90%, 40, 50% or whatever, it, it's, I think you have a, you've developed a very strong constituency and a, a resistance to the, the tyranny that's going to be coming. It doesn't mean that people aren't going to try because that's, that's your business model, right? But so I'm, I'm, I've seen that happen on, in, in medicine as well. And so, I mean, there's always a tension, but I think at this point, it's almost so early that these, that they're hardly recognized by lots of these large companies. Just like for the homeschooling, I don't think people really cared that much because hardly anyone did it. And then suddenly it was big enough that it was a larger constituency and the teachers unions worry about it or they try and stop charter schools. But then enough people are doing charter schools. They're like, you can't take this away from me. Right. It's really hard mm -hmm. to take that away once you've um, once you've given it to people and they like it, find it. That's better. I mean, if charter schools were terrible, well, then you could get rid of them easily. But it turns out that people like them or a certain percentage of people really like them a lot. And so same thing with this healthcare. I, I think you're. You can try and get rid of it. You can try and put some barriers on it, like because you do license physicians in states, and so states could put barriers by saying you have to take insurance, you have to take Medicaid, for instance. But the problem is, is for one thing, these physicians will just refuse to do it, and then you'll then you have all their patients upset. Uh, and so I I just I just don't think it's a feasible thing for a government to do. Not that they won't try, but I think they're sort of behind. And I think cryptocurrency is probably the same thing. Like you know they'll be able to regulate parts of it, but. Ultimately, you can't you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube, right? Yeah. Well, tell people how to find your podcast. So uh, it's the paradox. So it's at theparadox.com. So it's T H E P R A D O C S. So it's kind of a play on words. I usually talk to another doctor. Uh, I had you on episode three. I've now hit episode one hundred and sixty-four. I am not a doctor, to be clear. Well, you do have your JD, which is a Juris Doctor. Yes, so that sorry, was yes. my angle at the time. <laughs> uh, but I don't have all doctors. I, I, For instance, I had someone who was uh, one of the truckers from Canada because I was just kind of curious. And so my show is not always about uh, esoteric stuff within medicine. I mean, we do some ethical things. We talk about brain death. We've talked about um, forced organ harvesting in China, which I think is very interesting and you know terrible. Um, but a lot of things about sort of people who are doing innovative things within the healthcare space and disruptive and finding solutions to get around these laws. And I kind of just talk to people who I find interesting who are doing cool things. And that's, uh, and so it's not just for people who are in medicine. I think if you're a physician, you're going to have a better understanding of why the healthcare system is broken and maybe people who are doing things to fix it. If you're a patient, you may wonder why things don't work. And so it may give you a better understanding too. And, you know, some things are certainly more in the weeds and specialty specific or just towards doctors. But for the most part, I think it's a pretty broad uh, show and I try and keep it dumbed down in the sense I don't try and get into too much technical jargon because it's not really helpful to anyone. And, you know, because even in, for me, you know, you can get very technical and it's certain specialty and I'm lost because, you know, 
the terminology or anatomy that I'm just not familiar with. And so it's really easy to kind of get lost in jargon. And so I do my best to try and reel people back, reel people back in if they get too far down into the weeds. Yeah. Sometimes I think people use jargon just to uh, seem like they're smarter than they really are. I think that's probably the case. Yeah. Yeah. You get that in, you get that in law, just like you get it in medicine and, and elsewhere. If I could mention my other podcast. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So I just, just, uh, this is super specialized. I don't know how many people here are from the state of Michigan or her Michigan state basketball fans, but I just took over as co host of one of the, my favorite podcasts that is called the final four is on the schedule. And so we just talk about Michigan state basketball. So it's totally unrelated to medicine, but it's something I've, I really have enjoyed. Uh, we have season tickets to Michigan state basketball. So anyway, that's the other thing I do. So I'd highly recommend if you're interested in Michigan state basketball, you check that out too. <laughs> and I don't know if I'll be checking that one out as a, I, as a Michigan so. Wolverine. Although you're also a Michigan Wolverine, and it, right? So, yeah, it's so I grew up in East Lansing, and which is where Michigan State is. And I went to Michigan. I grew up right when the Fab Five. I was a senior in high school when the Fab Five's freshman year, and so I I grew up hating Michigan for many reasons. One thing: Michigan State was terrible at everything. I mean. Occasionally, in basketball, they'd make the, the NC tournament, but they usually weren't very good. And Michigan was not great, but they were better than Michigan State usually. Uh, and in football, Michigan dominated. And that's most of people talk about football, right? And so mm-hmm. you get, if you're a Michigan State fan, there are more many Michigan fans in East Lansing, but there are enough of them to really uh, compl- tease you all the time and try. And, you know, they just taunted you. And so you just came to hate them and by extension, <laughs> their team. And so I would, but. For me, I was in engineering, and there's no question. It's a, I mean, Michigan has a fantastic engineering school. If the academics are great, and so I went to Michigan for undergrad. I cheered for Michigan. I got season football tickets. I could never handle the basketball team because the Fab Five is just, I don't know, I just couldn't handle them. And and do you and, hate or dislike Ohio State? I don't like the word hate that much. I, but go ahead. <laughs> I am. Well, I I hate. I just said there. I. I I have a problem with the state of Ohio on a basis just because we're in Michigan, but um, I do not like Ohio State. If there's one, there are two things I learned at Michigan. One is to uh, not like Ohio State, and the other is to not like Notre Dame. Now Notre Dame is not quite as much a, a big deal, but at the time it was absolutely like a thing. You just couldn't like either team, and so I definitely got those two. And I got to the point where I could tolerate Michigan pretty well. Um, so I. And I was a huge Michigan hockey fan because I was never a Michigan State hockey fan. So it was I, I really enjoyed Michigan State hockey, uh, Michigan hockey games and stuff. So, And I went to Iowa for med school, and so I became an Iowa fan too. So it's a very complicated sort of Big Ten sports league. But I've got – my academics is different than my sports. But I definitely have a lot of allegiance to Michigan as an academic institution. I think it's a great school I did, you know, in so many ways. My daughter's there right now. My son, who's a huge Spartan fan, desperately wants to go to Michigan uh, as an engineer when he's uh, – He's a sophomore right now, but he, he's like, I'm just going to wear a Michigan State's t-shirt and everything. I'm like, you know, you can do what you want. It's not a big deal. It's a, and people there in Michigan, you know, no one in Michigan really cares that much about Michigan State. I mean, you kind of do. It's a bigger deal. If you walk around yeah. with an Ohio State shirt on, then you're going to get hassled. But if you go watch yeah. Michigan State, people might look at you funny, but they're not going to they're not gonna give you as much as hard a time. Yeah, Maybe you're it's right. different now than it was then. I mean, because now Michigan's not done as well against Michigan State in different sports, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there there is more parity in the sports now compared to 30 years oh, ago yeah. or whatever. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, Michigan, Michigan State was – I mean, I when Michigan State went to the Rose Bowl in 1987, uh, 
they still, I mean, they still weren't a great football team. They, Michigan was pretty bad. As Demetrius, you probably don't remember Demetrius Brown. He threw, they came into Michigan to Spartan Stadium and he threw seven interceptions in that game. Seven. <laughs> and, and Michigan State won, I think, by six points or something. It was like they, they won, but, and they actually had to beat Indiana to end the season because Indiana was the other team in, in tied for first place in the Big Ten. And so they beat Indiana to get to the Rose Bowl, which is hard to fathom. It's like the only time Indiana was any good. And so, and otherwise, Michigan State was terrible. I mean, I go to games and Michigan win 49 nothing, and it was just, you know, miserable. It was like they just get destroyed. So, uh, you know, so it, now it's it's different. In fact, it's almost, you'd almost argue Michigan State's been better in, in both basketball and football, more successful, which is very strange. I mean, our kids nowadays, they, they didn't realize Michigan State was just terrible for so long. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd hate to say Michigan State's better, but – I don't. Um, I, a, at, I, times, know, yeah, at, at times, yeah, certainly at times. Like yeah, you said. I mean, mm-hmm. there it's a it's a it's a rivalry where before it was a rivalry because it's in state, but it was never like an equal, on equal, equal footings, right? I mean, there's one team that's clearly better, like especially football. I mean, there's you beat them, but it was like you'd beat them every five, four or five years. Yeah, I was at um, at Michigan. Uh, well, Tom Brady was there, so that was like. Is it, was know. he pretty good? I can't. Yeah. You know, at the time, at the time, we actually didn't think much of him. I know. I, I remember. And that's why he didn't get drafted. Was he like six round draft pick or something? So was, it was, it was kind of like, uh, why do you got this guy in? We've got, you know, some younger players who should come in. And yeah. <laughs> so like, uh, we couldn't even understand it at the time. But, um, but I'll say this, when I was there at Michigan, I attended football games and I don't, I mean, I remember going many seasons without losing a home game. Oh yeah, which is not how it goes anymore. Obviously, I mean, we had a we had a pretty good um, season recently, but generally speaking, you don't see it where you'd go a few years where there are no home losses. And I remember, I think maybe I experienced one home loss in my whole time there. Yeah, we had always that at, uh, at Michigan. Yeah, we had the Cordell Stewart, which was. Disaster! I don't remember that game, but where he where they he was winning, he threw a hail mary. I remember touching my friend. I said, "It's like uh, he's on the he's on the point yard line. Why is he throwing in a hail mary? There's no way he can get to the end zone." And the guy threw it like 80 yards into the end zone, and they won. And everyone in the stadium was just standing stunned for five minutes. It's the weirdest thing, but um, yeah, they were. I mean, they were very really good. Yeah. Eric, I think we're we're starting to lose your um, AirPod mics or something. Maybe the batteries the batteries are dying. All right, well, um, pull the plugs on that so we can at least say goodbye. Uh, you know, on the maybe you can get the pull your AirPods out or something or turn them off. I can. Good. Is that better? Yeah. So now I can. Can, yeah, 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 yeah. Now we can. Now you can hear me at least. Now we can. Yeah, hear. we've. Yeah, I guess that's yeah. a good way to end the show when your AirPods die. So, uh, yeah, but it was um, it was great having coming on. I appreciate it, and hopefully, you know, hopefully, got to some stuff you wanted to talk about. No, it was great. Um, I think people got a good chance to learn about you and figure out why we're friends and have become very good friends over the years. Um, and I, again, I. What I love about you is your modesty. Um, you know, you've always been a very kind, modest person, and I appreciate how candid you are. And you never, 
you know, you'll you'll tell it how it is, especially when we have private conversations. <laughs> and 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 I love that about you. So I really appreciate it. I know that I'll have you on other times. Um, you know, I had some of my uh, best friends from high school on uh, in the first episode. I'm sure they'll come on again, and I'm sure you'll come on again at some point because having friends on, um, nothing beats that in terms of who I want to talk to on this podcast. Yeah, so. no, it's it's. I mean, that's the best, and I, you know, I appreciate our friendship, and it's been so much fun for me to get a window inside of. Uh, in, into your brain, because I think, you know, the way you think and approach problems is really, is really fascinating. And, and I think the one thing people probably don't appreciate as much about you is your optimism. And because for what you went through it through the legislature, I've always been impressed with the fact that you would think that you could still win. And, uh, and, and <laughs> maybe, maybe it was a naivete well, or maybe, something. Maybe, but... I mean, but I think, but I think, you know what, uh, you know, you read the Lord of the Rings, Mordor falls at the end, right? And so I think, yeah. uh, and ultimately, again, just like with the the healthcare thing, I think, I think there's reason to be optimistic. There are times that there are always forces that are opposing you for whatever it is, and, but uh, oftentimes the the good guys win, and it's not a it's a usually a continual struggle. I mean, we are in this world, and this world is broken, and we do what I can to to uh, make it better for ourselves and for our kids and for others. Um, but you know, that's, that's all you can do. And that, you know, is why sometimes I feel like I can't rest and just read a book. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I do appreciate that, uh, very much. And I, I do think it is something I tried to impress upon my colleagues when I was there, not to give up, to keep pushing, to keep trying. I always would say to them, we might not be able to accomplish it, but there's no way we'll accomplish it if we don't try. Yeah. And and so I was really pushing them all the time. Um, and a lot of times on those surveillance fights that we had in Congress, I had to really just drag people along with me <laughs> where they really did not want to get involved because they didn't think we had a chance. And we came very close on some votes in a, um, in a way that was unexpected and uh, and put the fear of God into leadership many times. So. In any case, I uh, I appreciate having you on, Eric, and we'll get together again and uh, and talk some more, and we'll have you on this podcast again, I'm sure, and I'm happy to join you again. Yeah, great, sometime. thanks a lot. I'll so, talk to you later. All Bye. right, all right, thanks, Eric. Bye.